This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Friday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Jeff. Jeff is back filling in for Becca, who is, took over his job. <sighs> then she went to London. Then went Poor to girl. London. And is now eating um, fish and chips all day in London. She may have gotten to go to London, but I got to go watch the remake of Overboard last night. I'm sorry. Wow. What's that? What's <laughs> Overboard? Well, we'll talk about it on my show coming up at 9. Oh, jeez. Really? You know what? Don't pretend like you don't know what Overboard is. Well, yeah, that's... I even knew what Overboard was. When you go overboard (sighs) on shows. Hmm. Overboard is synonymous with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Hmm. Still lost me. (laughs) Still not there. Speaking of Overboard, uh, Kilauea Volcano. Yes, it's bubbling over. It's going overboard. And which is scary. It's the most active volcano, but if your uh, home's in the way of it, yeah. yeah. I mean that's a scary thing. Everyone else stands around and goes, Ooh, hate to be over there. That's why I <laughs> that's why I chose not to live in Hawaii. I just didn't want to live by an active really? volcano. Was it that or the exorbitant amounts of uh, the cost of living that are just huge? No, I thought they would sacrifice me. One of those, you know, hey, sacrifice the map. Yeah, yeah, they don't do that anymore. Join the volcano. Yeah. That is a great movie. It's underrated. Oh, boy. Here's the overboard again. (laughs) Overboard on the movies. You keep going. You just – this is what I forgot about you. You love movies. And because it's Friday and the third hour of the show we do screen cleaning, all your mind is thinking about are movies. Joe versus the Volcano was the second collaboration of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. He's still going. America's Sweethearts. Yeah. That's a great point. Anyway, um, <laughs> lots of other stuff going on. Rudy Giuliani continues to just oh. talk and create havoc, it seems like, for the president. But uh, maybe maybe not. Maybe there's, some, maybe there's some method to this madness. Just get all the, uh, what, all get the, ahead of the violations facts. out yeah. in the public? Is that the? Yeah. Okay. He wants to be ahead of the facts because. So when anyone accuses you of wrongdoing, we've already admitted to that. Yeah, he was sure that the FBI New York investigation would be leaking stuff. I think it's so mostly he wanted to get ahead of the facts. I All think right. it's mostly there's just madness to the madness. Oh yeah, it's a great point. Um, so Giuliani's gone crazy. Uh, I mean, all the late night shows—they're all roasting him. Everyone's right. all over it. So, let's let's get to the headlines. Let's see what, what Terry makes of all of this. What's going on, Terry? One story yesterday: Donald Trump has seized on an NBC News error that led it to publish a report wrongly claiming that federal authorities had wiretapped his lawyer slash fixer Michael Cohen. Yeah. Uh, NBC quickly corrected its error a couple hours later and posted the original story. Uh, that the monitoring of Cohen's phones was limited to a log of calls known as a PIN register. Just a call log. Not a wiretap where investigators can actually listen to the phone calls. The, the, the register shows who made the call and to whom and how long the phone call was, not the context of the phone call. Yeah. Thank you for the correct grammar, by the way. There you go. But Trump attacked the network, claiming its error as evidence of fake news being written to undermine him. Yeah. He tweeted, NBC News is wrong again. They cite sources which are constantly wrong. Problem is, like so many others, the sources probably don't exist. They are fabricated fiction. NBC, my former home with The Apprentice, is now bad as fake news. CNN, sad. Hmm. Now, 
He's accusing them of lying. Yeah. And then yeah. we, we, we hear things with Rudy Giuliani, like the president, uh, originally the president said he didn't know about payments. Now yeah. he knows all about the payments. Yeah. That he, this, well, they weren't payments. The payments. They were just, I, was just, I was just paying a retainer. Yesterday, during the White House press conference that uh-huh. they hold every day, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about why she didn't know about this, because she stood up yeah. with that microphone multiple times saying that Trump knows nothing of this. And... She's saying things like, well, he was just recently made aware of this. I'm like, that's not what Rudy Giuliani was saying. And then she's having to backtrack a little bit. Mm. And then they asked her, so um, is this going to be ongoing, how the White House isn't going to inform the press secretary as to what's happening so that when she a- answers questions, we don't know the legitimacy of the asked. answer? They asked, did you lie or were you yeah. un- were you in the dark? She wasn't happy about the question yeah, that being was a asked. Tough question. She uh, she kind of went after hardest her. job in D.C. It is, and and she is obviously being left out of the loop. Mm-hmm. But she can't stand there and admit that they're not talking to her because she's supposed to be the source of information for the White House, even though she's not. Oh wow, it's kind of interesting. The tangled web. One person in critical condition after a shooting at Opry Hills Mall in Nashville, Tennessee, Thursday afternoon, according to the Tennessean. A spokesman for the Nashville Fire Department said the injured person was taken to the uh, medical center. Reports of a second victim were false. The fire department also tweeted that the injured patient was uh, transported was a male. Nashville police tweeted that the shooter was in custody. No additional imminent threat is known. According to police, a dispute led to the shooting. Local police first responders and ATF responded to the scene. So a guy went in, started shooting, came out of the mall. Um, oh wow! He, uh, an off-duty police officer, was there, and he, the guy, immediately surrendered his weapon to the off-duty police officer, who had the guy lay down and wait for responding officers to come and detain him. Wow! There was some uh, police motorcycle uh, exercise going on in the parking lot, so people were able to respond quickly. It was just kind of a was it a weird was it like a, was the, was the shooter looking for one person or he was, was. It? okay? There was somebody in the in the mall he was mad at, and they were. Having a fight, and this is how it ends. Yeah, up so, but no, no one, no one killed. Ah, <sighs> good. But, but again, discharging a weapon in a mall yeah. isn't necessarily the best. Not a good idea for public safety. Twitter is urging its over 330 million users to change their passwords after a bug exposed them in a plain text, according to uh, this website. We, what we recently found a bug that stored passwords unmasked in an internal log. We fixed the bug and have no indication of a breach or misuse by anyone. The company wrote in a statement. As a precaution, consider changing your password on all services where you use this password. Hmm. This applies to native Twitter desktops, sites, and apps, as well as third-party platforms. Uh, The company says it has removed the uh, passwords, but it won't say how many users were affected or how long it took to find the, quote, bug. Oh, boy. Will you change our password on our No, it's fine. It's probably going to be fine. It's not a big deal. Because I don't even remember it. It seemed like a very... Like, the, the urgency behind the change your password wasn't really there. It's more like, oh, by the way. By the way. Do we what you need to do. Yeah. Uh, finally, Korean, a Korean janitor hit the jackpot as he uncovered seven gold bars while cleaning out a garbage bin in South Korea's biggest international airport. Ooh. Uh, the unnamed Mayo Cleaner found $325,000 worth of gold bars on Thursday at the <laughs> airport located in Seoul, South Korea. Each gold bar weighed one kilogram, was wrapped in a newspaper. After looking into the matter, local police concluded that the gold bars were dumped by two men transporting them from Hong Kong to Japan in an effort not to get caught by customs. 
The local newspapers report the best part of the janitor's discovery is that the man might be allowed to keep the gold bars under Korea's finder's keepers law. Yeah, yeah. But this will only be possible if the real owners do not come forward with the next, in the next six months and further investigation does not reveal any criminal activity. <laughs> right, so it could be his gold bars. Yeah. The janitor will not even be left uh, will not even be left penniless if the owners do choose to make the claim. As under Korea's Lost Articles Act, anyone who finds lost items can keep five to twenty percent of the market value, which will amount to a maximum of sixty five thousand dollars. Wow! But everything might not be that simple. With a report from BBC quoting airport authorities as saying that the cleaner might not get any reward at all. Because he was, quote, working as airport staff and it's part of the cleaner's job to find it's part of his part of his job to find lost things. Yeah, that wasn't lost. That was hidden loot. If it turns out to be the case, it's unclear who will get to keep the gold bars if they turn out to be unclaimed. Oh, so who gets it? His manager? Maybe the airport gets them. Who knows? I hate to keep going back to movies, but in a movie... Oh, oh, well, you know, let's not do that. Whenever, you just choose not to. Whenever you find a suitcase full of cash or gold yeah. that doesn't belong to you and it's just lying around, it's probably best you don't take it. Because there's somebody that's coming after it. There's like a mob boss that And if you take it, then they're coming after you. Mm. Now, do you know what happened here? I don't want to just – this is what happened. Because I've been to an airport recently. Bold-faced speculation. Go. Have you ever (laughs) – have you ever – you're in line for the TSA and you realize, oh, man, I have a whole, like, soda that I haven't even opened. Sure. You see people just trying to drink it really fast. And you either have to just (laughs) guzzle it and get sick or just – you just throw it away or give it away. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened. The guy got in line and he's like, did I leave my gold bars at home? Oh, I brought them. <laughs> Blasted. And then he's like, I guess I'll just put them in the garbage. Yeah. You can't just give away gold, you know, bars. You probably could. Well, but, but I mean, it'd be better to just hide them. And then the TSA line's not the best thing to pass out like, you know. Your gold bars. Im- impro- I mean, if <laughs> you have a gold I- bar, if you and I have an item that you can't get through TSA, it doesn't make sense to hand it to somebody else in the same line as you. That's and that's true. who you're surrounded by. Yeah. So I can see the conundrum. And, you- especially because you don't want to get out of line that's at right. TSA. Oh, it's no. right next to the exit. He could have just stood by the exit and said, and you get a gold bar. And, and you get a gold bar. <laughs> not, not suspicious Oprah. at all. Right. Man. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. So he could not or could get. Portions or he all won't get of anything. And it's it's always big government, and somebody's going to take it. And by the way, don't you wonder? Like as he tries to take the garbage bag out of that, out of the garbage can, and he lifts it up. How many pounds was it? It said like how many gold bars? It said it, uh, seven gold bars weighing a kilogram apiece. So yeah. That's pretty heavy. Pretty heavy. So you wonder? Did the was it a hefty bag? Was it a good bag? Did the bag hold that many bars? <laughs> How many gold bars can a bag hold? Don't say hefty. Say blefty. Yeah, a, a brand that rain, rhymes with blefty. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Fun times. Boy, so, we, we we wish him the best of luck. That would have been about 14 pounds full of gold in that's that garbage sack. So, yeah. That's about how many drinks I have to leave at TSA. 14 pounds worth of beverages. <sighs> like to stay hydrated. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how uh, your work ethic may be killing you. Are you dying for a paycheck? Straight ahead.
In the United States, workers work amongst the longest, most extreme, and most irregular hours anywhere. Have uh, they? They don't have necessarily. Um, the luxuries that you would think that we might have in a first world country and in in the United States where we tend to lead out in some of these things. You know, uh, we do have sick days, but many don't, right? There's no guarantee of that, no guarantee of paid vacation or family leave. All of these uh, points uh, lead up to the fact that uh, many of us may be losing our health in order to gain a paycheck. And here to talk about it is Jeffrey Pfeffer. Pfeffer. He is the author of the book, Dying for a Paycheck. And uh, he decided to investigate the impact of management on employee health and company performance. And uh, some of the research he has found is quite surprising. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Are people really dying because of their paycheck? Is Is it actually costing us our health? Well, no, they're not literally dying because of their paycheck, but they're certainly dying because of their work environments. Um, Two colleagues and I have a paper published in the peer-reviewed journal Management Science in which we estimate about 120,000 excess deaths annually in the United States, about $190 billion in excess costs. And when I tell, give these numbers to my friends in the human resource consulting business, they say the numbers are way off. They're much too low. Really? Um, there's, a, there's an article in China uh, that talks about a million people a year in China dying from, um, from overwork. Oh, so, wow. yes, the workplace is, in fact, a public health crisis. Wow. And it's, um, again, it actually even, it's, it's one of the top five, the fifth leading cause of death, according to your research. That's right. Well, that's not according to my research. If you take 120,000 deaths, which is what we've, what our research estimates, and and then look at the, uh, the mortality tables um, from the you know from the from the, the United States publishes, uh, this is the fifth leading cause of death. The workplace is the fifth leading cause of death. It is higher than Alzheimer's or kidney disease. Mm. What are the factors that uh, that make up this? The, the pain that it's causing on us. What is it that it's doing to our bodies um, and, and, the, and the stress it's creating? Well, it is creating stress. Stress is very unhealthful. unhealthful. You, in your, in your lead-in, you mentioned one factor, which is the long hours. And, and by the way, in today's world, they're not only long hours, but for many people in retail and banking and hospitality and restaurants, they're also irregular hours mm. because with all this fancy scheduling software, uh, companies don't want to have extra workers there, uh, access to what would be the predicted demand. And so people often find out their schedules at the last minute, um, and and their work hours vary from week to week. Therefore, their income varies from week to week. So that's a second issue, which is economic insecurity. Mm. Um, economic insecurity is, is the varying schedules and also layoffs. Layoffs have become the kind of a normal way of doing business today. Another factor is uh, the absence of job control. Many people are being micromanaged, and that uh, most people would find that stressful. And another issue is work-family conflict, um, where we are not getting the benefits. You talk about the absence of family leave. Uh, many people don't get paid time off. Many uh, employers are not very accommodating of their employees' needs to deal with elders or children. And and so there is uh, that that's another source of stress which has been shown to affect health. I mean, frankly, the most surprising thing about this book is that when you look 
at the research, the epidemiological evidence is actually quite extensive, well more than 700 studies, many of them going wow. back decades on the health effects of these work environments. That is amazing. And so what is it? How did we get here? I mean, it seems like uh, these organizations would would be realizing that they're they're just paying higher costs and they have lower engagement. They have all of these other uh, issues going on because of of how they're working their employees. Well, that's certainly right. I mean, one of the things, not surprisingly, when people are sick, they're not as productive. Yeah. And also, when people when people are stressed, they quit. Um, so I think we got here. You know. It's, it's hard for me to actually, that's one of the things I did not look at is how we got here or maybe even how we're going to get out of this place. But, uh, but certainly I think one huge change that has occurred over the last several decades in the United States and really around the world is how leaders of organizations think about their role. I mean, 40, 50 years ago, um, leaders thought of themselves as stewards balancing the interests of shareholders, employees, the customers, and the community. And as we've moved to an emphasis on just shareholder value and shareholders as the only constituency that matters, I think employee well-being has probably fallen by the wayside. And also, of course, there's more competition than there was 40 or 50 years ago with the opening of the world economy to competition now from India and China and the global labor market. Um, I think many people see a... um, you know, extra competitive pressure, and so they've decided to uh, basically ratchet up the pressure on the workforce. Yeah, well, and and then you know, they some companies feel good then, I guess, giving you health benefits. But if the health benefits are being used to mitigate all the other problems from working in the organization, it's kind of a lose lose. It is. It is very much a lose lose, and of course, health benefits. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, the percentage of companies offering health insurance in the United States has gone down. And more importantly than that, the cost shift, the cost shifting has been quite dramatic as, um, as companies have shifted more of the premium cost to employees, um, the deductibles have gone up. Um, and the co-payments have gone up so that, um, according to Gallup, Gallup has a survey that says one-third of the U.S. population replies in the affirmative to the question, have you had to postpone either getting medical care or filling a prescription because of cost? And that's one-third. Now, by the, of course, that number is smaller for the people with health insurance, but even for the people with health insurance, a, 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 there's an astonishingly high, at least to me, fraction of people mm. cannot access medical care because of cost. Yeah. Uh, we're speaking and of with, course, and of course, no health care means no health. No, right, right, and 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 yet they still have the stress to make ends meet, and you still have to go to your job, and you might even love your job and being be stressed out of your mind doing your job. Yep. I mean, that's there's there's I guess part of the irony of this. Uh, we're speaking with Jeffrey Pfeffer. He's the author of the book "Dying for a Paycheck: How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It." He is a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business and has co-authored or authored many, many books. Um, Jeffrey, I guess I look at it, too, that um, we – it's almost like I feel like we live in a world where you can get a job however you want to get it. There's so many different ways to work. Is this going – is this new kind of model of – um, working, doing online and, and working out from home, is this going to change 
any of these factors of um, stress and health-related issues that we feel at work? Well, I think the new the new ways of working probably make it all worse. Does it? So the gig economy, there's various estimates of the percentage of people working in this kind of um, irregular or non-regular arrangements, um, and that of course means uh, means uh, means economic insecurity is higher because you don't know what your salary is going to be uh, one minute to, uh, to the next. Uh, you don't know what your hours are going to be. Um, so that I think will make life worse uh, when you're a freelancer. Uh, not necessarily working for home, but from home. But when you're a freelancer, you don't have access to unemployment comp- or and workers' compensation benefits, and probably no access to retirement or medical care uh, benefits either. So therefore, you're going to have more financial stress from that as well. So the the, the new economy looks to me um, not to make, be making things worse rather than better. Mm. Do is this something that the organization? needs to fix? Is is this something that just the individual needs to start paying attention to? Or is it, I guess, it's the answer of all of us? Yes, I think that's And government, I guess, too. That's it. No, I think that's exactly right. So individuals, when individuals pick their jobs... They need to um, they need they they need to take into account the psychosocial effects of those jobs on their both physical and mental health. Uh, companies should certainly try to do something and understand that when human beings go go to work for them in the morning, um, they have really entrusted their psychological and physical well physical well being to the organization. The organization ought to take that responsibility seriously and be good stewards of people's well being. And if governments want to control the healthcare cost crisis, which is, by the way, occurring just not in the United States but around the world, then they need to look to the work environment as one, not the only, but certainly one important source of the rise in healthcare costs. Hmm. It is interesting, too. I've seen even just around BYU campus and here at BYU Broadcasting, we have more and more activities for wellness, uh, you know, you know, we just had a demonstration for making green smoothies. Everything they can do, it seems like, to get us to meditate, to exercise, to be healthy. And so it seems like some are taking it seriously, but I guess simultaneously, though, too, they may not be looking at the other systems and structures that create stress. That's exactly right. And, you know, um, so there are many organizations, Stanford is certainly one, and many of the large employers, I think about 70 or 80 percent of them, maybe even higher percentage now, have various health and wellness programs which focus on individual behaviors. But again, there's an enormous body of epidemiological research that suggests that eating habits, uh, exercise, smoking, drinking, and uh, taking drugs are all related to the inv- uh, people's work environments and the stress that they're facing. There was a wonderful article in the New York Times by a psychiatrist who's written a book about addiction, and he t- says, the, the quote I love, he says, they call it comfort food for a reason. So when you are stressed, you are more likely you know, to eat uh, stuff that's high in fat and sugar, and you're more likely to smoke more, which has been demonstrated. You're more likely to drink more, which has also been empirically demonstrated literally for decades. Oh, yeah. So... So I think with respect to the programs that you're talking about, um, I think prevention is better than remediation. It's more cost-effective and probably more effective, period. So instead of giving people ways of overcoming the effects of stress, you're better off just preventing the stress. And also with when we see that the the fact that we're going to have to retire later in life, uh, baby, we're living longer. Baby boomers are going to be a massive part of our um, our workforce for a while, and 
that kind of that's a scary idea that you're going to have to work longer, but also more stressed. Yep, I think that's exactly right. But of course, this is not true for every company. There are some companies, Patagonia being one, and you know, SAS Institute, which is famous for their family-friendly work policies and having a chief health officer for another, which is the largest privately-owned software company in the world. I mean, there are obviously companies that are taking their responsibilities to their employees seriously and, and understand the costs of, of, of making people ill, but, but there aren't enough of them. Hmm. If we had a magic wand and could give it to you, what, Jeffrey, what would you, where would you start? What would you do? To make it all probably, better. Uh, so I, I mean, it's hard to know how to make it all better, but <laughs> I, I think I would probably begin by um, by trying to get both human resource professionals and senior executives to understand the magnitude of the problem, the pervasiveness of the problem. This is not just something that applies to blue collar workers, you know, people working in mines or construction sites or on oil rigs, that this is, this is really a, a very, very pervasive problem. And to first, I think we need to understand how big this is and the magnitude. And one of the things I would urge organizations to do, particularly if they're large and self-insured, is to measure. There, there are two simple measures that can indicate whether or not, um, you know, your workplace is toxic. One is a single item self-reported measure of health. This measure, you know, basically how healthy are you on a five-point scale has been shown to prospectively predict uh, mortality and morbidity, even when you control for people's current health status and various biomarkers. And this uh, this prediction, this predictive value holds across various subpopulations, the, the elderly, the young, um, uh, various ethnic groups as well. So uh, you can, you know, everybody's doing surveys, add that single question to the survey and hold people accountable for those results. The, the second thing you can measure is you can go ask your benefits administrator, you know, what is our norm by age and gender? Uh, what is our use of um, population use of working for the organization? Our use of um, antidepressants, ADHD drugs, various psychotropic drugs, because it's it's kind of funny, but it isn't. Um, you know, when, when, when people are stressed, they are going to probably medicate. Or they're going to self-medicate themselves with smoking, drinking, and drug taking. But they're also going to medicate themselves by going to their pharmacy. Mm. And so if you look at the percentage of people you know, using antidepressants, that might tell you something about whether or not you're running a decent workplace or not. No, absolutely. Does um, I, I guess, too, as, as uh, you look at this, this is something that we need to get understanding into the current workplace. Do you see at Stanford and other like MBA programs and I mean I know you're in organizational development and leadership. Is this being talked about more uh in the MBAs that are going out? Nope. Not at all. Oh. So yeah, so the future the future's not necessarily lined up too well then, is it? No, and and that's frankly, you know, that's frankly one of the reasons I wrote this book because, you know, I'm and one of my endorsers, I think it was Tom Rath, who's a mm, yeah. Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Tom Rath said to me after he read the book and he's been a big supporter and a fan. He said, you know, he says it's a wonderful book. He was happy to do a very nice endorsement. The other thing he said to me he says, he said I have to say having read the book and having thought about it for a minute, you wonder why people haven't been talking about this more. So this has been 
something kind of under the radar, yeah. something that's kind of in the air, but people don't really, I think, appreciate the seriousness of the problem. So one of the reasons why I wrote this is to try to pull, to, pull together in one place stories and data to get to, to kind of wake people up to what's going on. Yeah, it's almost like we're numb. We're so numb. We, we know something's weird, but we don't know necessarily where it's coming from, and we just numb out. Yep. And, and I think the numb is a very nice phrase. The other, I think, related to numb, and maybe it's the same thing or maybe it's a different aspect of it, people believe that, that this is necessary. Mm. So I've had people say to me, well, you know, stress is a normal part of, of, of modern workplaces. There's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. That, is, that is factually untrue. You can see within each industry there are better and worse places you know, in software, they're better in worse places. In health insurance, they're mm. better in worse places. In the airline industry, they're in the retail industries, there's better and worse places. And many of the better places are obviously more profitable because they have lower turnover and healthier work, workforces. So this idea that, that we have to, that this is the, the price that we have to pay for competing in a modern economy is basically making people sick and killing them is just incorrect. No, that is, and that's, that's a great, that's a great point and a great place, I think, to leave it because, Jeffrey, this is, this is choice. This is agency. This is about uh, who we are and, and we've got to start making some decisions and pushing back and maybe going more aggressively after the good jobs, the places that do make us healthier. Jeffrey Pfeffer is his name, uh, professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business and also, again, author of the book Dying for a Paycheck, How Modern Management Harms Employee Health and Company Performance and What We Can Do About It. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, and all of us. Let's let's pick up our games. If we're a manager, let's create a healthier workplace for our people. If And let's just push back a little bit. Push back to get some life back and to be a little healthier. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Label. Welcome back. Uh, you know, could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go of your loved one, your your significant other, your uh, you know, your companion for life? You just too clingy. There really is. Uh, there, there's there is a an issue where some of us in our relationships, when we have kind of an unsafe attachment, we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached. Right, where we are constantly wondering where our partner is. Why are you here? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you? Uh, you know, why haven't you called me? And and we become a little too needy, a little too stuck uh, on. On each other now, right? It's good to it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other, but clinginess is a whole different ballgame. In fact, here are some questions for you. Uh, I put together a little uh, quiz called the clinginess quiz. Here you go. Has your partner? This is how you can identify if you might be a little bit too clingy. Has your partner expressed concerns that you're clingy or needy? Have they ever told you you just 
You're just a little too needy. Do you get depressed or anxious when your partner isn't around during the day? Like, do you do you miss them so much that, you know, you get a little depressed? Do you place unrealistic expectations or demands on your partner because of your concerns? Do you put like a demand? And I've had clients that have demanded that their partner text them three times a day. Do you feel like you are less valuable and or less important because your partner is more independent than you are? You know, because the mere fact they want to go out and, you know, do something, you know, go golfing, does that terrify you? Well, what am I going to do all day? That takes three hours. Uh, are your thoughts or and fears keeping you from focusing on other things? Can you not move on and go do your other work that you need to do because you're too worried about what your partner might be doing? Do you have a childhood history of abandonment or trust issues? Do you, have you ever felt like your your parents maybe weren't there for you and you know, you've known for a long time that you've you just have a fear of people not being there for you. And do you suffer a strong, consistent sense of fear of losing people who are close to you? Do you worry that people might die, that people might not come back? Because if you do, you may have other issues going on, like an attachment disorder or abandonment issues. And that's where, you know what, if it's just fine, we'll work on it, right? But uh, one of the keys would be to get to the root and to go get some help. It's a perfect time to go get a counselor and let the counselor help you figure out what's going on, why are you so clingy, and what what really is the deeper fear. Because you might think that holding on to the one you love is the key, but the tighter you grip, the more likely you are to lose the one that you love. And so – we want uh, to be close to our partner. We want to show that we care. In fact, we in the Bible, we even talk about you've got to cleave under your partner, right, your spouse, and unto none other. And um, I, I looked up the word uh, cling and the word cleave. Listen to this. Cling means to hold fast to or adhere closely to something as by gripping or sticking in contact with it. Uh, to cleave is to adhere closely or stick and cling to remain faithful to it. And also um, the word cleave is also a verb, which means to part or split. Like a meat cleaver uh, is something that splits um, between division lines, natural like division lines, right? So um, to be – to cleave unto someone means you actually do stick. You remain faithful to that person. It also means that um, at some point you don't – you've got to be independent enough to have your own life. You've got to be somebody that is um, strong enough to to be able to go your on your own, and then when we come back together, life seems to be better. That's called interdependence, right? So just check it out. If you've got a little too much clinginess going on, it's time. Watch out. If you uh, stick too much, then others are going to have to pull away from you just to maintain their freedom. And you don't want that. It's actually the opposite of what you want. We'll continue the journey. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back. Um, Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and the 12 Shapes Relationship System. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, Kim joined us to talk to us about how to beat a victim mentality. I began the interview by asking, why wouldn't someone want to play the victim? That's true. And there's a lot of benefits to playing the victim, which is why I think so many of us kind of gravitate to that. 
And I really think most of us learn this as a little kid because yeah. almost everybody's family, if you start crying and <laughs> said, but my life's so bad, it's mom so and true. dad, you got sympathy, love, and attention. Yeah. And it only took once right. for and you to figure out that, <laughs> hey, this is a winning this strategy. Works. This is so good. And then if you notice, they get really dramatic too. Like they'll do a dramatic fall. My kids, I still have younger kids, but they don't do it anymore. But if we offend one of them, and he's the victim, or if he gets hurt, he'll play oh, yeah. it. He'll milk it milk for all he can. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's good acting. They're good at it. By the way, soccer players do it too. Well, soccer players are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> the flop, also known as the victim yeah, drop. Yeah, rolling in pain. But mentally, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a bad position to be in, isn't it? Because if you're the victim, you, I mean, even if it's real that you've been victimized, it may not be the way you want to play it out. Well, there's a cost to it. And and I want to talk some more about the benefits to yeah. it. But the, one of the big costs is loss of respect. You you can have people's sympathy or you can have their respect. You really can't have both. Interesting, yeah. So, so you got to know. You got to know yeah, but what you're I, going for. I think the, the bigger problem, Matt, is that we might have learned and we may have even milked it as a kid. But for a lot of us, it's now a subconscious program. Right. And we may be kind of pulling the victim card without realizing that we're doing it. Yeah. And, and all we know is that we're just feeling depressed or sad or upset about our life. And we don't really realize that we're using it to to get a payoff uh-huh. that does come from that kind of behavior. But yeah, but you're you're kind of it's a pathetic payoff. <laughs> Cuz oh. Well, and I have to be honest with you. I mean, you know, my little bit of my story. Yeah. I I've, I've had some rough stuff in my life. Right. And so I have been able to recognize that tendency on the subconscious level with myself. And I it was really funny cuz I was working on this article over the weekend about victim mentality. <laughs> And I just joined this gym, and at the gym, they give you a heart monitor that you wear every day, and it keeps track of how hard you're working. And so if you're working really hard, you literally get points that pop up that they keep track of to show that you're working hard. Well, my heart monitor won't work. And so I'm not getting any points. You're not getting any credit for all your work. I'm working so hard. (laughs) Oh, man. It's like they're against you. Well, I sat there and went, you know what? This is playing out. Even in my subconscious mind, I'm having this self-pity thing that I paid for this. (laughs) And I'm not getting any points for all my hard work. And it just suddenly dawned on me that that's kind of one of the stories in my life. I try so hard and I still have these health problems. I work so hard. I mean, we can have this and really not realize it. But if you will start watching and become a little bit mindful about your behavior, one of the things I think it's powerful to watch for is is how much do you talk about what's wrong? Yeah. If if that's a big part of your discussion is everything that's bad. And, you know, it always is. Yeah. Yeah. You go martyr, don't well, you? Well, you remember last year I told you I went to this meditation retreat yeah. where I couldn't speak for 10 days. And one of the main things I learned there is that a lot of the things I wanted to say were about the terrible headache that I have. And I, I, when you can't speak, you have to sit there and go, why would you feel the need to tell people that you have a terrible headache? Interesting. But at the subconscious level, we vocalize a lot of what's wrong without recognizing it. And guys, this is victim mentality. How? But you, that's such an interesting thing. And then you, I guess, you did learn that a lot of what you're saying is irrelevant. It's. I mean, it's you're actually doing it 
to get pity or attention and yeah or so, validation and, and to, to know people that. care about me you know yeah so That's i cool. i kind of made it a goal to try to be mindful and and not vocalize complaints i can have a headache not have to tell anybody that i have one there's really it's not serving me or anyone right. to make sure everybody knows that i have a headache today <laughs> But this is what we do. It's so true. And it's so subconscious. You keep saying that. It's on a very subconscious level, it somehow serves us. Being a victim somehow serves us. I guess it really is we want we want credit for why we may not be delivering, maybe. Yes. That's one of the reasons I think we subconsciously use it as it's kind of our excuse yeah, to get out, out of things. So you gotta ask yourself, is there ever a time you might be acting the victim or telling your story in order to get sympathy love because because we want to feel loved and i see this a lot on yeah. social media i'll see people post worst day ever and that's it tell me about it stacy <laughs> and it really is fishing isn't <laughs> yeah, it for it some is, sympathy totally. love to make sure there's people out there that care about you right um do you use your sad story to get people to behave the way you want them to or to do things i hear this from a lot of people that my mom whines about her health and complains because she wants us to help her more and yeah. jump in. Or she'll talk about how she has so much to do today. And it's really about manipulating <laughs> yeah, totally. people. Oh, man. Yeah. I hate that. Um, or do you use it as an excuse to get out of things you don't want to do or so that people won't ask you to do anything <laughs> more? Right. I'm tapped out. <laughs> Daddy's got an aneurysm. Definitely well, use Dad, it that way. Well, Dad, if you had an aneurysm, way. you wouldn't be talking. No, I've got one in my head. It's killing me. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Nobody takes care of dad when he's got an aneurysm. Oh, I, I hear this a lot from about mothers. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will tell me my, my mom is the master victim yeah. at using her sob story for manipulation. Right. I've heard that too. I've even experienced it. Or the martyr story. The martyr story. They're very story. similar. Like, that's fine. Nobody cares about me. It's kind of like, oh... Yeah. You're dying for the cause. And and even sometimes we complain about how horrible we are. I'll I'm mm-hmm. just I know I'm a failure and I'm, I'm not good enough. To, yeah. And and even that is totally fishing it's for very, some yeah. validation for someone to tell you you are okay. But in the end, I guess people it, it's you're saying it's just not that's not how you want to come about life by getting pity. Well, like I said, you could have sympathy love but and it does respect. get you that. But people will see you as weak. They will lose respect for who you are. Yeah. So I, I think it's really important that we take a step back and really figure out how we want people to see us. Do we just want them to feel sorry for us? Yeah. Or do we want them to admire and respect us and see admirable qualities in us? And and be intentional about it, not just falling back on some trap you learned when you were four because doing a flop worked. Yeah. So we want to make sure we're choosing behavior consciously and yeah. not just letting our subconscious programming, the stuff that worked as a kid, determine our behavior as an adult. No, that's way good. That's way good. So what do we start to do? So if we do notice, we tend to play the victim and we kind of like it a lot and we're really good at it. Okay. The what first do we do? thing we got to do is I want you to sit down with some paper and and get clear about your victim story. What is your what is your favorite victim story? What do you find yourself talking about most often? And can you identify what it is you're trying to get from it? Because it, I think if you look, you you will be able to see. Hmm. Um, and then 
really get down on paper what this victim role looks like to other people, what they, how they probably see you. And I, I want a really good description on paper of what me playing the victim looks like and the way people see yeah. you. I think if you have that down first, then I want you to get out another piece of paper and I want you to design who's the person you want to be. How do you want people That's to see idea. you? How do you want to come across? And I think having both of those on paper so you can see clearly your two options. Not working. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, would you like them to see you as a champion, as a warrior, as a survivor, as somebody who's strong? And and you really don't have to tell the sob story for them to know that you're going through it. Right, right. Uh, it, makes a lo- it, it makes a bigger impression with people if they just see you making the best of mm-hmm. situations, focusing on the positive – so figure out what that looks like on you're, paper. You're not saying deny the reality of your life. I mean, if you've been hurt or you know held down or pushed down or beaten down emotionally because of something or just some sickness, you're not saying deny it. You're just saying don't make your story be a pity party about that. Well, be I, about what you want to be. How do you want people to see you yeah. dealing with this hard thing that you've been dished? True. Well, I, I want to use the hard things that I've been through as a human achievement, right. as a, a chance for me to get stronger, better, wiser, more loving. And I've got to kind of write that story ahead of time. Um, I had a client recently who went through some really hard situations, and I said, I want you to imagine you're old and gray at the end of your life, and you're looking back at where you are today, and, and you're seeing the next year or two. What do you want to see that you did yeah. with this hard thing? Write the story now. What do, what do you want to see that you you know you achieved and the way you handled it? And I want literally you to write the story of the next couple of years now, so you can see this option that, that you have. Solution, that healthy solution. That healthy right. Fix. And then I like my clients to keep those two pages kind of handy yeah. because all day every day those are your two options. You can be this guy. Or you yeah. can be the champion and the warrior and and strong, That's so and cool, amazing. Well, and and simply to have designed what you want to be, you now have a play, a playbook. Otherwise, we only know the victim playbook because right. that's what we always play. <laughs> so we need we need another playbook. clearly defined other option, yeah. and I find that it, that really helps on paper. That is uh, Kim Giles, who is again the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching teaching us how to uh, give up the victim story and the victim mentality. We all we all could probably uh, do a little bit better in just owning it, taking on our lives and losing the stories. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy days to you. And uh, Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff. Terry's coming. Uh, Jeff's back, by the way, filling in for Becca, who took his job. Right. And Jeff uh, has been to court-ordered um, events since then. And I'm actually going to be filling in 
for my wife at home this weekend. Yeah, too. you've got a big day coming up. Your wife's leaving town for a few days, and you have to take care of the child. Wait, wait, no, no, that sounds horrible. You get to be with your children, but you have a son that um, is used to being fed by mom, and you now get to bottle feed that cute little... <laughs> yeah. He will not take a bottle. Well, he, he better learn. It. He better learn or he's going to lose a lot of weight over the next few days. He's got plenty to lose. He's a chubby kid. Does is he? Mm-hmm. You know, you those get are the on, cute ones. Well, you ought to get him on one of those weight things that you were <laughs> a diet bet. A diet bet is, uh, but your mom will be in town too to help. Mm-hmm. So your mom can rock him, mm-hmm. and maybe your mom will have some method of getting him to take that bottle. Maybe I've tried uh, like one of those plastic syringes that you use for children's medicine. Yeah, that didn't work. Well, he. Um, I've mean, tried just like squeezing yeah. the nipple on the bottle yeah, into his mouth. It, yeah, didn't work. No. Maybe, you know what, um, I don't know, try a Twinkie. Maybe I'll try like a I love Twinkie. Twi- Twinkies. Really? Twinkies. I, I would eat anything. So just Twinkies. inject the milk into the Twinkie? Just so Have them dip it in the uh-huh. Twinkie? Mm-hmm. There you oh, go. That could some, work. Get him some <gasps> Oreos and milk. That is a great idea. It's not a, I mean, seriously. <laughs> it, I mean, he'd ha- make sure, you know, you clean him up because he'll have Oreo all over him. Maybe I'll try, like, Chinese water torture with the milk. But, like, instead of having it go on his face, just have it go on his mouth. Yeah, yeah. You know what? (laughs) Once he's hungry enough, he'll figure this out. Okay. It's a pretty simple thing. It's like Terry and salads. Hmm. Because ever since he found out that the salad, that certain lettuce has E. coli, he, he wouldn't eat forever. And then he finally figured it out. And when you're hungry enough... You'll eat anything. No, I, had, I, had I never to... stopped eating it. I just doubled down. I'm going to eat it regardless wow. of the possible contamination. Yeah, you pushed through the E. coli. Yeah. I had to do a fact check last night because we went out to eat. My mom ordered a salad and I said, wait a minute, isn't isn't uh, the salad supposed to be bad? And they said, no, it's just Arizona. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. If your lettuce comes from Yuma, you're you're okay, by the way, let's not say that. Arizona, though, because it's now Yuma. It, it's, uh, it's Yuma. If you have Yuma. Flarizona. If you have Yuma lettuce, uh, Yuma romaine lettuce. Well, kind of their growing cycle's coming to an end. Yeah. It's more moving into California, my lettuce, Salinas, California. Thank you very much. Well, isn't it really our lettuce? No, no, my specific lettuce, the, the lettuce I am consuming. Wow. By the way, yeah. don't forget that there's a women's conference in your neck of the woods when you decide to go out to dinner. Yes. We did not get a table, so we had to change our plans. By the way, there's a huge women's conference here on campus. (laughs) Tens of billions of women gathered. And, by the way, weirdest thing, as I was driving in today, Mm. I I see like two or three people carrying javelins. What? And in my head, I'm like, what? Like, women's conference and javelins? What's going on here? It's their Hmm. cross-country event. Yeah, now then I realize that they really are having a a track and field field, uh, contest here. That's good. Along with women's conference. Oh, Oh, and there's a— I thought it was a combo. They're doing both. And there's a marathon here in Provo tomorrow. In no way connected. It's one of the sessions of how to get better through javelin throwing. (laughs) So steer clear of the Utah County area. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We used to have uh, one of our producers was a javelin thrower, huh. and then we made the joke until the accident. Ooh. And then that turned into a whole new story. 
And then he quit and no longer is with us. Okay, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What uh, else is going on other than women's conference and the fact that Jeff's going to have to force feed his child? Right. (laughs) So Jonathan Carls, the ABC News White House correspondent. Yeah. He wrote a thing this morning kind of looking at from his point of view what he sees with Trump and Rudy Giuliani and all this stuff that's going on. So it was Rudy Giuliani tells ABC News the Trump legal team is now preparing to battle against a subpoena for Trump to testify. Because I think it's 50-50 that Mueller subpoenas the president for his testimony. Wow. Because right now they're asking for him to come in under his own volition and sit down and let's have a conversation. 50-50 that it won't be voluntary. It'll be subpoenaed. Be compelled. He goes, I have to prepare for the 50%. He's preparing for the subpoena. The president and the special counsel are engaged in a game of chicken. Both sides threatening steps neither wants because they could trigger a crisis with dangerous and unpredictable consequences. Does the president just ignore the subpoena? Wow. And then are we having like the the office of the president is now ignoring the rule of law? But then the Supreme Court would compel him to do it. Would they? Or is there special situation, special circumstances because he's president? He doesn't have to be under subpoena. Well, I thought, yeah, I think they'll compel him. That's the argument that's being made. Despite Rudy's 50-50 odds, the Trump legal team thinks Mueller won't pull the trigger on a subpoena and will ultimately be forced to accept written answers from the president because the lawyers won't let him sit down with Mueller. Wow. That's how he sees this all playing out. This could get cray-cray. Yeah, so... Just keep an eye. It's kind of interesting. Have a good weekend. After uh, two government shutdowns and vocal opposition to some members from some members of Congress, President Trump finally signed the $1.3 trillion spending bill at the end of March. But now more changes to the bill could be on the way. The White House is planning a $10 billion in cuts to the spending package, something conservatives have pushed for since it passed. GOP aides told the AP uh, cuts will come from money left over from previous budgets, such as unspent disaster aid dollars. Instead of funding in the massive plan, it's like it, it'll likely be finalized and presented to Congress early next week. Wow. So Trump signs this bill. He wasn't happy having to sign the bill, but he, I guess that he was kind of cornered, so he had to sign the bill. If you remember, he complained about all the Democratic like uh, pet projects yeah. and things that are in this. And so now they're trying to backtrack and make good and cut all this, what they see as bulk, out of the deal. But it's interesting that it's unspent disaster aid dollars. Yeah. You'd think that we would have spent all the disaster aid money seeing that Puerto Rico is still in with or midst. without power, right. depending on the day. Uh, what's the deal? Just a thought. It's just, just a thought. <laughs> 70 members of the migrant caravan that reached the United States southern border last week crossed into the U.S. Thursday morning, turning themselves into American authorities in order to claim asylum, organizers said. Those 70 brought the total number of migrant caravan members who have crossed into the U.S. in order to claim asylum to 158, according to the group that organized the caravan. Uh, All have crossed at the port of entry between San Diego and Tijuana, including the 70 who turned themselves in at 9 a.m. Thursday. They were the largest group to be accepted for processing so far. There's another 70 or so waiting to be processed to come in, so more coming in. This is that caravan that had nothing but bad intentions for our nation. Tip us over. Yeah, so. The caravan's coming. Uh, Again, nothing. They're just trying to claim asylum, which is a legal (laughs) process that they're trying to follow the rules to gain entry to our country. Or are they? Or are they, yeah. Finally, a Modesto, California man was hit by a train Wednesday for the second time in his life, and oh, he survived. Wow. wow. Second time, and he survived. 
the unif- the unidentified man who reportedly looked to be in his 50s or 60s was riding a bike across the tracks when he collided with a slow-moving train. It appears he was struck and dragged along, but uh, for uh, for getting hit by a train, he had minimal injuries. He looked what? really good for being hit sh- by a train. He had some scrapes and bruises, a fire department spokesman said. The cyclist reportedly removed himself from the locomotive by the time first responders arrived on scene. They reported, the first responders reported, that the man was talking with a woman next to him while crossing the tracks and apparently didn't hear the train's horn. Oh, wow. The crews shouts for him to get out of the way until yeah. it was too late. How do wow. you miss a train horn? I have no idea. You're just mm. talking no, to someone No, how do you next- miss a train horn twice? Right. And then the, someone <laughs> leaning out of the locomotive saying, get out of the way. Get yeah. out of the way. And what, the other lady couldn't hear it? They were, were they in love? Maybe there's a lot of love there. Hmm. hmm. That's probably it. They're probably... So you're a relationship... Yeah, expert. Is that what it is? Yeah. I didn't want to go too far no, with the expert. designation there. Yeah, I'm an um, expert. So when you're like caught up... Yeah, in love. Infatuated. Yeah. Can you like not hear a train whistle? Oh, yeah. When it's apparently two feet behind you? Mm-hmm. Jeff can't even hear his wife most of the time. Huh? Hey, maybe this is the excuse I can start using whenever I have... To have my wife repeat herself. Yeah. I can just say, I was just so smitten with you. Yeah, but she'll say, no, you were actually watching a television show. But in my mind, I was really thinking about you, Then why is what w- I would say. Then why were, why wouldn't you hear my beautiful voice? You'd think that the tenor of my voice would just make you want to be there for me. Well, you, you've seen it in movies where a, a woman is talking to a man, and the man is just so infatuated with her... That the the sound yeah. just gets drained out, and there's this dreamy cloud, and yeah. that's not real. What? That's movie land. Come on, it's not real. Oh, boy. But you know what? There is something that creates the exact same effect. What's that? Sugar. <gasps> sugar. That's why we call people sugar. Hey, sugar. You know, stuff like that. So um, up next, we're going to be talking about the fact that uh, sugar may be. The cause of many of our problems with our health, with our happiness even. It's addictive. It's just as addictive as cigarettes, many claim. And up next, we're going to be talking to the author of the book Sugar Wars, who's going to you know, give us a behind-the-scenes uh, look at what's really going on with sugar and why, why we don't necessarily think it's as bad as, as he claims it is. That's all straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. Among Americans, diabetes is more prevalent today than ever before. Obesity is at an epidemic proportion. Uh, Nearly 10% of children are thought to have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And sugar is at the root of these, all of these. And other critical society uh, um, issues, uh, food issues, health issues. We've got a lot going on. And we may have just not ever heard the actual real story behind what's going on with sugar in our lives. And so we wanted to bring in um, uh, an expert. Gary Taubes is joining us. He's an investigative science and health journalist, a co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative, and is the author of The Case Against Sugar, which was published in 2016. And uh, we we wanted to bring him in to just to get the real scoop. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us today, Gary. Thanks for your time. 
Well, thanks, Matt. Talk to me about um, this. I mean, sugar, it's really weird how we kind of go through the cycle of what's really healthy for us, what's not. Sometimes we thought sugar may, you know, sugar causes cavities, obviously, we thought. But then we hear counter stories. We hear it's about the fat. It's about the carbs. But uh, is, is sugar healthy for us or not? Well, I clearly think not, or I wouldn't have written this book. Um, one of the things I try to do in this book is kind of straighten out the, the dialogue we've been having with sugar for 150 years. And uh, as you noted, we've gone after a lot of different sort of dietary evils. And since the 1980s, we focused on fat as the primary evil in modern diets. And when we did it, we told industry, our government told industry to produce as many foods, as low-fat foods as they could, and often in order to make a food palatable, after you remove the fat, you do it by replacing it with sugar. So we've had this message that we should be eating low-fat diets, and we should be eating low-salt diets, and we should be eating sugar in moderation because it's this sort of generally benign thing that makes us feel good. And I've been uh, investigative reporter working in the nutrition field for 20 years, and I just thought the time had come to sort of establish what the case really was against sugar, which is that, uh, regrettably, and I feel like the Grinch stealing Christmas saying this, it's got these kind of unique properties that make it the prime suspect for causing uh, obesity and diabetes on a, on a population-wide level, by which I mean you add sugar to any baseline diet, and it could be a vegetarian or a vegan diet or a paleo diet or anything anyone's eating anywhere in the world, add sugar, and within you know, a few decades, you have obesity and diabetes epidemics. Wow. And, and it's, they've done, it seems like, as I've read more and more of your work, I mean, there has been kind of uh, almost equal to the cigarette world and companies hiding of the real research, the real data. There's been a – it seems like a pretty intentional, um, you know, goal to cover up the real impact of sugar. Yeah, I I don't actually see – I think sugar is is, is ultimately as harmful as cigarettes, has probably killed more people prematurely. But – there's a fundamentally different situation that with the cigarette industry, the cigarette industry was stuck trying to, uh, as you put it, they were hiding what the, what most scientists believed to be true. They were insisting wasn't. So there was a consensus of opinion that cigarettes cause lung cancer and cigarettes are addictive, and the tobacco industry would go out and try to fund scientists to counter that message. Mm. Um, in sugar, the consensus was that fat's the problem and that dietary fat and obesity, and you get obese because you eat too much, so it's all calories. We've all heard this mantra, calorie is a calorie is a calorie. So in the 1960s, when British researchers specifically started saying, look, sugar is, it's not fat we should be worried about, it's sugar, um, all the sugar industry had to do, and they did it very well, was sort of launch a public relations campaign to say, no, 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 these guys are quacks. Hmm. They're fringe food fattists, and the consensus is that we should be worried about saturated fat and how much calories of all sorts we eat. So the kind of conventional thinking on what a healthy diet was and what the cause of obesity was worked 
to the sugar industry's advantage, and they ran with it. Mm. And I'm not sure I, you know, I often ask myself if I was in their position, what would I have done if you've got sort of 2% of the research community saying your product is dangerous and 98% thinking it's somebody else's product? I'm going to go with the 90 with the, the sure. majority. Yeah. So, uh, but the end result for the American public is the world was was all potentially tragic. These obesity and diabetes epidemics. Talk about um, first of all, I guess why why is research so difficult on nutrition? I mean, why is there so much? confusion about whether it's fats or carbs or sugar or, you know, why, why, why is there so much confusion if, if we can all use science? Well, and so, you know, we have a system in place, for instance, with the Food and Drug Administration to determine whether food additives are toxic. So, you know, you could give them to rats and mice, and if they kill the rats and mice, that's a bad sign. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about nutrition, uh, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, these are disorders that develop over decades, years to decades. And so, uh, and you want to know what happens to people. So you, I don't really care that much whether if I feed a rat ice cream, the rat dies from it because I read you know, ancestors didn't see ice cream for two million years. I'm interested in what happens when my kid eats ice cream. Mm. So you want to do you have to do the experiments in, in people, and then you have to let the experiments basically go for ten or twenty years, and you have to have enough people so that at the end of twenty years you can see whether the kids who ate ice cream had more obesity or diabetes or cancer than the kids who didn't. Um, you need tens of thousands of people to do these experiments, right? And so they're, they're just, they're exorbitantly expensive. And for whatever reason, um, we never made the societal investment to decide they were important enough to do. I think they can be done, and that's why I started this not-for-profit, the Nutrition Science Initiative, but they, they cost tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. They're very hard to do right. They're very hard to do ethically because you're hum- using humans as subjects. And so instead what happened in this field is there are a lot of ways to gather lesser evidence, which is like circumstantial evidence in a legal case. And where we wouldn't use it to convict someone in a legal case, we were happy to use it or we accepted using it in the field of nutrition because it was the best we could do. Mm. So when you read the papers every day and you see the latest news, you know, if you uh, eat, get your... Uh, fats from vegetable oils instead of animal fats, you'll live longer. What you're reading really is not an experiment that tested that idea, but the fact that health-conscious people who you know use olive oil tend to live longer than non-health-conscious people who use uh, lard or trans fats. Pick your poison, and and you can't really imply that from the data, but because it's the best we can do. That's what our research community has done for 50 years, and I'm arguing they've made some terrible mistakes in Mm. doing it. Talk to us about what the data actually says. So overall, when it comes to sugar, what is its impact? Why is it so negative? What does it do to us that is so dangerous? Well, so the argument I'm making in the book, the observation we're trying to explain, the crime that's been committed 
is these obesity and diabetes epidemics that show up a- everywhere in the world. And I mean, it's, it's a, the, the World Health Organization director recently called it a slow motion tragedies. Mm. And they occur after any population starts, goes from their traditional diet to the Western diet. And so the question is, what is it about the Western diet and lifestyle that's causing it? You know, and we often, in, when in China, people like to blame it on, on the KFC franchises because they're springing up by the thousands. But then you say, well, what is it about KFC? And I'm arguing again that everywhere this happens, the first thing that changes in the diet is they start consuming a lot more sugar and then liquid sugars, you know, sugary beverages. Uh, companies like Coca-Cola have made it their sort of purpose of existence to get Coca-Cola to every individual in the world, regardless of where they are. And so on a when you think of it as a crime being committed, sugar is always at the scene of the crime. Mm. And then the actual physiological problem, particularly with obesity and diabetes, is a condition called insulin resistance or uh, dysregulated insulin signaling. And while we secrete this hormone insulin from our pancreas, the insulin resistance seems to start in the liver with the accumulation of fat in liver cells. And it turns out that half of a sugar molecule is a carbohydrate called fructose. That's what makes it sweet. And we metabolize that fructose in our liver. And our liver, you know, throughout human history saw tiny bits of, tiny amounts of fructose a few months a year in fruit when it ripened. Mm. And that's what it can deal with. So you could think of it as being designed to deal with small amounts of fructose a few months a year. And then now what we do is we dump fructose on it all day long in these massive amounts, and we do it quickly. And what's you know, well-known in experiments since the 60s is that when, when livers are overloaded with fructose, they turn it into fat. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, sugar is at the scene of the crime in the human body when this condition occurs. And that's basically the argument I'm making is you've got more than enough uh, evidence both worldwide and and physiologically to implicate sugar. And we have to really start paying attention to this idea that it's it's toxic, but toxic on a a level on a, you know, over years to decades, not Mm. toxic, you know, is the chemical we give a rat and the rat keels over. Yeah, it's yeah, it's over time. Uh, again, we're speaking with Gary Tobbs, who is the author of the book, The Case Against Sugar. And uh, Gary is an investigative science and health journalist, also the co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. And is, um, is I, I think it's fascinating, Gary, how you put this together as a, as a real case, as if like you were uh, inve- like a police officer investigating the crime of of you know sugar and you've uh, you've put it together as a case so would we have enough evidence uh, to convict sugar and the, and the answer is despite everything i've said no hmm. you have enough to indict you have copious circumstantial evidence what you need to say beyond a shadow of a doubt so the question ultimately comes down to is there something uniquely toxic about sugar that causes these diseases just as uh, cigarettes cause lung cancer and or is it just that we like it so much that we consume too many calories of it and that contributes to making us fat and that's a question you actually can't answer um, 
So when we talk about smoking, we don't we never say, well, smoking too many cigarettes causes lung cancer, right? So you should smoke in moderation. Right. Because we're confident that the cigarettes cause lung cancer. End of story, you tell people not to smoke. In sugar, you could still say, well, eating too much sugar, and this has been the message for 50 years, eating too much sugar contributes to obesity, and obesity contributes to diabetes, and so eat it in moderation. And if I were a good lawyer, the sugar industry had a good lawyer, they could easily get that the jury to decide that that's likely enough to acquit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm arguing that, well, first of all, we can do the studies. We, you know, we should do the studies. The sugar industry should want to see the studies done because they may be killing people. And if you did those studies, I'm arguing, I'm pretty confident what you'd see, but I'm, you know, I'm the prosecuting attorney. So, yeah. Uh, and you also yeah. bring up the fact that science has science been complicit in kind of the confusion or the misunderstanding because they were also being subsidized? Many science scientists were being subsidized by food manufacturers. Yeah, well, when the field nutrition department started in the U.S., uh, beginning at the uh, first one was at Harvard in the early 40s, uh, the idea was always that the industry would work closely with these nutrition departments because the nutrition departments were basically generating students who would go off to work with industry. It wasn't until the late 60s with Ralph Nader that uh, this started to be seen as an unholy partnership in which industry was you know, giving money to these departments to influence what they concluded. Um, but clearly the industry was taking advantage of the bad science these researchers were putting out, and it was bad, and then, you know, helping them, pay them to communicate what they believed. Um, so, again, in that sense, there was, a, there was a sort of unholy alliance between the two, but it starts with the bad scientists. If the scientists had gotten the right answer in the 60s, the sugar industry would have figured out a way to deal with it, just as the dairy and uh, you know, meat industry figured out how to deal with the saturated fat message, which I think was also wrong. Um, ultimately, the argument is, you know, we don't need, when we talk about a conviction or an acquittal, we're talking about do we have enough information, do we have enough evidence to regulate, the, to tax sugary beverages, and, uh, you know, I'm relatively agnostic about that, but I, the argument I make in the book is we have enough information for you, for individuals and, and parents and families to decide are they going to consume this stuff in anything like the amounts we've been doing. And they can experiment for themselves. They can give up sugar and sugary beverages. This is the good thing about nutrition. We could do these you know, self-experiments. So I'm going to give it up for a month and see how I feel mm. and see if my weight improves. And if I feel better and my weight improves, then I don't, have, I don't need fancy scientists to tell me whether it's harmful or not. Yeah. Um, I might need a psychiatrist to tell me whether or not I miss it enough. <laughs> right. It's worth it. But. but one of the things you bring up, and um, maybe this can we can wrap it up on this, is, I mean, give us some guidelines. What should we, what are your recommendations? Because also sugar is in everything now, right? Any processed food probably has sugar added to it. So what? How do we go about doing that test, pulling off of sugar? And apparently, fructose is is uh, is is as damaging as sucrose, I guess. And what what are your recommendations? 
Well, a lot of it is common sense. You can get rid of most of the sugar in your diet by avoiding the obvious sources of sugar, which are sweets, sugary cereals, candies, and sugary beverages. And that includes fruit juice, because even the problem is even though fruit juice comes from fruit and the sugars are more naturally occurring, it's still the same sugars and you're still inflicting the same damage on your liver. It's like the equivalent difference between hitting your liver with a you know, branch of a tree or hitting it with a baseball bat. Hmm. The wood's the same one way or the other, and the effect's going to be the same. Um, I, when I talk to my family and my wife, I say there's one item on the food labels, you know, the, 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 the nutrient labels on products that just look at the sugar content. Well, look at the sugar content and look at the portion size because sometimes what they do is they make portion size you'll buy a some food in a, in a box or a bag and it'll say there's only seven grams of sugar in it which seems relatively few it's about a quarter of the sugar in a can of coca-cola but then you find out that the, the they're talking about a portion size that's tiny also uh, classic thing is these little sort of hundred calorie yogurts that you could buy at the stores and give to your kids for school lunches and they look so healthy and they're they're half the calories are from sugar hmm. even though they're they're effectively candy with a little bit of yogurt around <laughs> it to give it the veneer of health so uh, my advice starts with this looking getting rid of the obvious sources of sugar and they're the things unfortunately that we crave so it's like telling a smoker who craves cigarettes well if you want to be healthy start with getting rid of the cigarettes and it's a struggle, and it, I was a smoker, so I, I know what that was like. Yeah. But ultimately, you get to the point where you, you are happier and, and healthier, and you no longer miss it. And that's the only thing I, you know, that what you hold out for. Well, Gary, I appreciate it. It's, um, it is. It's, it's quite a, an uphill climb, but I appreciate that at least we're getting some of the facts right. Uh, Gary Tobbs is his name, and the name of the book is The Case Against Sugar. Um, look it up, check it out, and see. Um, let's just start learning. Let's just not assume uh, and take advice from you know manufacturers that have a vested interest and and growers that have a vested interest to just sell more sugar. We know our heart tells us what's right. We just got to get a little more information inside. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back. You know, um, sometimes uh, when you're married, you might have a spouse that embarrasses you. Can you believe that? My, uh, my wife does. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit is what to do when you have a spouse that does embarrass you. First thing I would suggest is identify your real source of embarrassment. What is causing the embarrassment for you? You know, because many times opposites may attract. Many uh, married couples have experienced the embarrassment of uh, just the differences of their partner. And to improve these situations, we have to figure out what is the real source of embarrassment. It, it, It may not just be your partner. It may be, you know, your own history your own experience, your own high sensitivity to certain things. 
you may um, you may not it may not be as embarrassing publicly as you make it seem or as you feel like it is. So, but if you do have a partner that embarrasses you, it's you know it's something we got to talk about. It's something we got to work on and maybe look at. But try to figure out what is it about your partner that's so embarrassing, and why of all things is that so embarrassing to you? And you might realize it's just it's a personal. It's a personal thing. It's, you know, you grew up in a family where you just don't do that. And that's just that's just not proper. But, you know, your your partner does it. So watch out for that. Another rule is anticipate the embarrassment. Sometimes you already know it's happening. You know your partner's going to do it. And um, it might simply be that, you know, you it might be the language they use when they're with old buddies. It might be the stories they do. It might be the embarrassing things that they're willing to do in walking strange or doing weird things um, just to create a moment of embarrassment. So anticipate it. Figure out how you're going to handle it. Think it through. Identify instead of trying to get your partner to change. Um, it might be interesting if it no longer impacted you. Would your partner have the desire to to play around with that embarrassing issue anyway, or would they be giving it up? So anticipate it. Figure out how you're going to handle it, um, and and what what you're going to do about it. Maybe it's just the minute it starts getting embarrassing, you just have agreed that you're just going to walk away. Or you're going to say a phrase, and the phrase may make it so that you know you you aren't going to take the bait and and let your partner play you that way anymore. Another thing you could do is just simply discuss the problem with your partner, but I'd suggest you discuss the embarrassment when the emotion is low. I wouldn't discuss it in the moment of the embarrassment, but uh, when things calm down after the embarrassment, maybe if you're anticipating embarrassing things coming up, um, discuss it when the emotion is low. That way you can actually think through the issue and um, and express your opinion, talk about why it embarrasses you, make sure it's not just kind of a a style thing that it really is something that's worth discussing um, and discuss that, you know, you love being with your partner, but sometimes when they act this way, it feels disrespectful, it feels hurtful, it feels harmful. And um, it really, sometimes you might just be able to be educating them, which would be valuable, I think, for everybody, right? But the rule would probably be discuss it when emotions are low. Once emotion is high, there's a great quote that says emotion hijacks meaning. And so you probably don't want to allow just emotions to go off and, and take you over. You want to be sure that you, um, you're managing your meaning a little bit better. And last but not least is learn together and establish some rules. Establish some, some just protocols, some etiquette. I mean, there might be part of what you might want to do about if it's so embarrassing is just express to your partner why it embarrasses you and and why it might actually be hurting other people. Sometimes people that do, you know, jo- embarrassing things or or you know, they're they're joking around in certain ways. They don't understand the impact it's having on others. And so you might have some rules that you know, if that's the case, if you're going to act like that when you're with your friends, then maybe what we ought to do is just make the rule that I'm not going to go with you. And you could make a rule for it. You could make a rule that uh, there might be a code word that you use with each other that's like with my wife, sometimes when she says Matt, seriously, when she says seriously, it it kind of means joke's over. Quit messing around. Seriously. And so I've kind of learned that I can play to a point, but once the point is passed and she's 
pulling out the word seriously, then it's probably time to stop. So maybe set some rules, um, establish some 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 understanding with each other, and then maybe just accept the fact that your partner's different and they may just do things differently. And and everyone's going to be a little bit different, right? And are you okay with that? Are you able to accept it? And maybe don't make it be as big as it is. Oh, that's easy for you to say. You're not being embarrassed all the time. Well, we're all growing up together. A lot of times you just have to suffer for the pains, the insecurities, the ignorance, the insecurity, and the embarrassment of the person you chose to marry. That's kind of life. We'll continue the journey doing what we can to help all of us live a little longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, folks. Uh, You know, we have Kimberly Giles on the show regularly. She's the founder of Clarity Point Coaching, and uh, we like to pick her brain. She's a life coach, and she was on the show a few – she's on the show regularly, but a while ago she came on and talked to us about victim mentality and how to overcome it. And uh, we've played parts of it on the show before, but I – I in the interview I I asked by – I started the interview by asking how do we avoid blaming others for the pain that we feel? And this is something we we all yeah. learned as a kid too. We we went to our mom crying and said, "Well, she made me yeah. feel bad. She hurt my feelings." <laughs> like we can't help, have any control right. over it. And mom and dad kind of validated this. Yes, she's evil. Yes, so this, <laughs> this is the behavior we learned where the truth is that you can't be made to be upset without your participation or permission yeah. to go there. Oh, but see, uh, I you can already have... hear people recoiling. I know. No, but she she said it, Kim. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what she said, but it was rude. And yes. you don't say rude things like that. And you've never been offended like that, so you don't know no. how it feels. Right. I know. I hear that quite often. As a matter of fact, Matt, every time I write this in an article that you have control over how you feel. Everybody who's caught up in the victim role writes in and tells me that I don't understand. Yeah. And, and by the way, notice they want to tell their story. Of course. They've got to tell their victim story because <laughs> their victim story is different. But it doesn't change the principle you're teaching. Not at all. So this is the bottom line, guys. We do have the power to be bulletproof. Yeah. To not let what other people say or do affect the way we see ourselves or feel about ourselves or our life. We have that power. The problem is that most of us don't know how to use the power right? and we don't use it. So we just let our subconscious reactions of hurt feelings drive and, and we don't consciously choose to process this in a healthy way. And you mentioned all the free resources on our website. We have some fantastic worksheets. I've got one called the to be or not to be upset worksheet. Hmm. <laughs> and yeah. literally... If you are upset, you print that off and fill it out. And by the time you get to the bottom, you'll be able to see that you've got other options. Upset is one option. Sure. But it's never your only one. Right. So I would encourage everybody to go get that worksheet. I think That's it's great. really, val- really, really valuable. To to be or not to be upset worksheet? Yes. Okay. To be or not to be upset. Because the truth is we really have power over deciding how we're going to feel. And you've got to understand that what other people say or do doesn't change you. It doesn't diminish you. It can't. We're talking about 
thoughts that exist in someone's head yeah. or words they say, they have no power whatsoever unless you give them power. So, so if I if I tell the story as to why I'm in such pain and turmoil, and I frame the story blaming another. Because all those people that hate you yeah. and don't like you. The minute I've done that, I guess you're saying I'm in the victim role. I, yes. fr- I frame myself as the victim of these big, powerful, mean people. Yeah. Have, you've really made yourself powerless. Yeah. That's that's the beginning of the end because <laughs> yeah. now your story is you're just weak. Yeah. And you have no control. You're just the victim. Mm. So – if you really struggle with this, and, and it's a real problem in your life learning how to do that, my book, yeah, I mean, my book really teaches how to do that. And they, they can, again, if you go to claritypointcoaching.com, you can get her book, Hello. It's honestly, when I think of it, and I, I don't know if I think I've told you this, but I, I, I tell people to go get the book, but it just helps you deal with every, a lot of your things you talk about are kind of subconscious thoughts, mm-hmm. fears, issues that drive everything else. But this victim idea is a subconscious thought. It's something deep down that you don't know you're operating on. And I'm sure the book will help you. I guarantee it's tied to fear. Yes, it is tied to fear. It always is. It's always about fear of loss, not having the life that you wanted to have because these people take from you. (laughs) So the book really will teach you how to get out of the fear of loss so that you won't live in the victim place. Yeah. The book, by the way, Choosing Clarity. Is the name of the book. The name of the book. The Path to Fearlessness. Now, another thing that you can do is really practice gratitude. Because I have noticed any moment in my life when things are bad and I could make a list of the things that are wrong that I have to complain about, I could at that very moment make a longer list of all the things that are right. Hmm. And and this is the nature of life. I believe every moment of your life, you're going to have both. You're going to have things that are good and things that are bad. And the question is, what are you going to focus on? So if you find yourself in that victim mode, step back from it and start making a list of all the things you have to be grateful for that are right in your life because there will be a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, and if and honestly, it'll be overwhelmingly positive. We just are used to looking at the negative. Absolutely. And so it feels like our life is overwhelmingly negative. It's just because you're it's discounting. negativity yeah. bias. Yeah. You're not selecting the positive. Right. Hmm. That's a good idea. Okay. So my last one is I really encourage my clients to literally change the way they see life in the universe. And the mindset that we encourage you to to adopt is to see life as a classroom. And you are here to learn to become wiser, stronger, better, and more loving. And that means that every single experience that is showing up in your journey is here for that purpose, to serve your education and growth. And that includes whatever the sob story, hard things that you've been through. They are here to serve you. The universe has brought you that class with no evil intention towards you, only good. I mean, the universe is literally conspiring to help you and serve you. And this hard thing is here for that very reason. And when I was at the gym (laughs) and I was starting to have my victim moment about how I'm not getting any points for this workout. Everybody else is getting points. As soon as I recognized, wow, this is my perfect class today. Here I'm working on an article about the victim mentality and I'm getting this perfect experience to feel it and practice with it myself. There's no doubt that this universe knows what it's doing. It is a wise teacher 
And every single thing that's coming into your life is here to serve you. To help you see that, one of the things I recommend my clients do is to sit down and see if they can name 10 positive things there you go. that have been created by you going through your victim story, whatever happened go. to you. Yeah. And I guarantee if you really look, you will be able to find 10 positives, ways that you got stronger or wiser, things that it taught you. And, and even if you can't come up with 10, if you can come up with five, you're going to see how this experience might have been your perfect classroom journey. Yeah. And as soon as you see that, you're not a victim anymore. You, you can't you, you've be. You've converted it. Well, it now you've converted it you. to a gift. It's a blessing. It's not just a curse. And once you've converted that, you'll have the eyes to see, the ears to hear. Well, and I, that's what clarity is about to me is being able to see your life accurately. Yeah. And if you'll see it as a classroom and this experience was here to bless you, you will be seeing it accurately and the fear will just dis- disappear. Love that idea. That is huge. It's like you've done this before, Kim. <laughs> A few times. <laughs> but the, in the end, though, the, what would you say to the person that says, well, Kim, there are people that are really victims. Absolutely. That sure. have been victimized. Yeah. There are. And in the end, they still – the healthy ones that find the healthy path out, they don't find it out being a victim. No, they, convert they, it to they something don't else. end up living there. Yeah. And that's the difference. Of course, when you were victimized, you're you're going to go through yeah. all of these emotions and you're supposed to. That's part of the class that you're in is processing through all those emotions. But at some point, you've got to decide that keeping that victim role the rest of my life is not going to serve me. So true. I can grow from this and be stronger and wiser and better. That was Kim Giles, president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching and one of our contributors on the show. And that's the show, folks. Uh, It's time now to turn it over to Jeffrey Liam Simpson on screen cleaning. Jeff, what's coming up on the show? It is packed. I mean, there's so much I can't even tell you about it in the minute that we have left. But we're going to have Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, who's from Canada, but today he's in the studio. Oh, I love Rod. And we're going to be talking about the film Overboard, which is a remake of, you know, a little known film from the 80s with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. You may have heard of them. Um, And then uh, we're going to keep going on with that theme of remakes and give you some that are maybe better than others. Oh, boy. You did it again, Jeffrey. Jeffrey will be up straight ahead with screen cleaning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back Monday. More fun to keep you living longer and loving stronger. Have a great weekend. Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Boy, oh boy, have we got a packed show for you today. And uh, I want to start off this episode of Screen Cleaning by making a very special announcement. Cole, I don't even think you are aware of this, and you've been with me for the entirety of Screen Cleaning. We have. Today, we celebrate our one-year anniversary of Screen Cleaning. Can you believe that? Now, if you want to get technical, I guess our first show in 2017 was on May 5th, but this is a, this is this is the weekend. This is the 365th day yeah. of that year. So we're celebrating a year of screen cleaning. I cannot even believe that. I don't even think I realized this until yesterday. But this is huge. It's been quite a year. It has. And the show has evolved over time. It's gotten better. 
I have to yes. say that, right? You don't want to say it got worse. <laughs> but because it has. <laughs> it has. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the reason for that is because we've really tried to zero in on the topics that you'll find interesting that uh, will help you make better choices on what to watch, what to do as a family. And we, we one of the ways we do that is we put a spotlight on all things that are good in entertainment. And another piece of interesting news that you might find interesting and a little redundant, um, today is Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. So you know what that means. We are going to do the remainder of today's show speaking with a lift because it's May the 4th day, Star Wars Day. That's not annoying at all, is it? Yeah, you you can go ahead and uh, tackle that, Jeffrey. Cole, do you celebrate May the 4th? I thought it was the coolest thing ever when it went around the internet in about 2009 or 2010. Sure. And when it first came out, right? By now, it's. I, I think I tweet something, and then I'm done. Like okay. any other holiday. Like, do you have like a favorite Star Wars quote that you like to tweet out? No. No. <laughs> it's May the Fourth be with you. You know what I should have done? I should have fulfilled my obligation. I should have pulled together that clip that we played a while back when uh, the announcement was made that Ron Howard was going to take over directing duties for, for Solo. Solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody put together clips of the original Star Wars movies with Ron Howard narrating as if he's in an episode of Arrested oh, Development. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and speaking of Arrested Development, uh, we are going to have an announcement coming up later in the show that I think a lot of people are going to be ecstatic Some over. Some news happened. It's Absolutely. True. I'm going to definitely check it out. Uh, that's coming up later in the show. Something else that I'm extremely excited about You may have remembered on New Year's Day, there were a couple of commentators for the Rose uh, Rose Bowl parade that people were unfamiliar with and perhaps not prepared for. And that's because they were Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon playing characters, Cord Hosenbeck and Tish, I can't remember her last name, but they were playing commentators for the Rose Bowl parade on Amazon Prime. It was a funnier die production and a lot of people were infuriated because they didn't really know that it was a big joke that this was kind of a mockumentary of sort or right. like a mock uh, commentary. Well, I think now the dust has settled a little people are a little bit and people are a little more excited about this next piece of news that Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon are reprising their roles as Cord and Tish to cover the royal wedding. Can you believe that? On HBO. This is going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So something that people are, you know, would consider a little more sacred than the Rose Bowl parade. Oh, but that was the whole issue why people got up in a tiff the last time, is that the Rose Bowl (laughs) is the granddaddy of them all, and this parade is as old as America itself, and this is a very time-honored tradition, and they're just there making fun of it. So my wife is really into any, any of this royal news. She's a big fan of the show The Crown. This is enough to get me to think about uh, maybe signing up for a subscription or at least a free trial of HBO right. to check it out. Get a free week out of it. Anyways. I remember the last time there was a royal thing. I, I, don't, I think it was a wedding in 2010 or 11 or something. Mm-hmm. I stayed up until 4 in the morning to see it happen because I was in college and I had nothing wow. else doing. My goodness. But it, 
I would take it that's when this is happening as well. It's going to be the middle of the night. So America you've got right? you've got to tune into this. I think I guess. Uh, Cole, I know you're excited about the announcement that there's going to be a Happy Death Day too. Absolutely. Now, this is a very important movie for you. Is are you worried at all that they're going to not do the original justice? No, not at all, because they really? won't, and it'll be fine. <laughs> You're just expecting that it'll when be I worse. When I love horror movies, I'm signing up for the fact that none of the sequels are as good as the originals, and they do 13 of them, and they're all perfectly fine. Yeah. Any any horror movie that's actually good is just gravy. I, I'm mm. in it for just seeing it. Well, we'll see, but I'm with you. It's probably not going to be as good. Uh, I've got a little bit of beef that I need to pick, or a bone to pick, uh, with movie pass. Okay. So had I'll I get not, the soapbox out had for you. my uh, original account not been canceled, well, let me ask because you this. Because you misused it. Do you have some of these new restrictions, Cole? No, not at all. Okay, yeah. My had, account's the same. Had mine not been canceled, I wouldn't have had some of these new restrictions. I now have to take a picture of my ticket stub after I purchase my movie ticket, which is fine, not a big deal. But the real thing that is that I'm not too happy about is I can no longer see the same movie twice. See, I thought that that was always a restriction. I did too. And then I found out that it wasn't true. So I, I used it to see a couple of movies twice. And uh, then they took that away from me too. And just when I needed it again, they took it away from me. And people are up in arms about it. They are furious. I was pretty sure that that's what I signed up for in the first place. And so I have no beef with this. And from from an economic standpoint, they did at the perfect time. True. Because there's this little movie that we have not managed to mention in two weeks of it being out on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple people saw it in that first weekend, I think. Well, what is it called? The most ever mm-hmm. in movie history saw it in a first weekend. Avengers Infinity War. This is... Just a small... It's Avengers, an indie production. The Avengers. This is the movie starring Uma Thurman and Ray Fiennes and Sean Connery. That, the Avengers, right? There is an Avengers. <laughs> this is the other Avengers. Okay. Well, starring 50 other people. Speaking of good timing, AMC, who is the biggest hater of MoviePass, yeah. has started a new pricing plan. If you Cinemark kind of did this a little bit ago, and they advertise it but when this you show is, up there. This is better. If you go yeah. to AMC before 4 o'clock to see a movie, you will now only have to pay $4 to see that movie. All right. If you go after 4, it's just $6. The problem is the only AMC that we have here uh, doesn't show movies until after 4 p.m. So, but it's a good it's a good backup option to go to AMC and only pay six bucks. Yeah, and to not be tied down to a membership. So, because maybe there are some months you're just not going to go to the movies all that much. And I can picture movies trying to get this closer if, when, whatever, MoviePass finally goes under, there's going to be this big dip in people that show up to the movies because all of a sudden. You have to pay every time you go, and so they're trying to get closer to that price point that people are expecting Sure. so that that big dip doesn't happen, I guess. Well, thank you, AMC, and shame on you, MoviePass. I guess. No, I, I, but I can't thank you, say MoviePass. that. But thank you all the same, yeah. Anyway, when we return, we have a fantastic guest here on the show, Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, and we're going to be giving our review of the new film, Overboard, starring Anna Ferris and Eugenio Derbez. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning.
many theme songs on screen cleaning, and if you are a fan of the show, then you know that that is the theme song for Rod Gustafson of Parent Previews, who is a frequent contributor and our good friend here on screen cleaning. And he's also uh, he's a big movie fan. He It's his job to help parents and families make more informed decisions about what to see and parents about what to show their kids. And today he's here to talk to us about a new film that uh, is going to seem very familiar, and that's because it's a remake of an old film from the 80s. Rod Gustafson, welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Hi, Jeff. It's been a while, but we're we're sure glad to have you back. Yeah, I, you know, in fact, I just keep on remembering when I got Finding Nemo mixed up with the shark movie, and so I'm so happy <laughs> that you wanted me back. Yes. Thank you. That, <laughs> yes. We yes. forgave you, and uh, all is forgiven, and, and we want my, you back. My wife hasn't forgiven me yet. In fact, we listened to the show last week and it, it was it was a playback of that and she just shook her head in in shame and yeah but rod is here for his redemption tour <laughs> yes i am here yes so rod i had a chance to see this movie last night uh with my wife but i'm interested to hear your take on it so give us a synopsis of what this movie's all about first of all and then what you thought of it Okay, well, let's totally ignore the original and, the, and for now, and then we'll talk about okay. it in a minute. So this movie is about a rich, pompous playboy who has this big yacht, and he hires this single mom. She's, she's, her husband has died. She's a widow. She's got three lovely children, and she is trying to make ends meet by working multiple jobs, and she's cleaning carpets is one of the jobs she does. She comes onto the yacht, cleans the guy's carpet. Something goes wrong. He's not happy, refuses to pay her. She refuses to leave. The yacht leaves the dock. She pushes him, or he pushes her overboard, throws her carpet cleaner into the water, and it's a sad scene. I'm thinking, oh, this guy is badder than bad. He's so bad. And so what happens is a couple of hours later, now this is a farce, and a farce means that strange, weird things are going to happen that you just got to believe. He falls off the boat in a drunken kind of stupor, washes up on the beach in the little Oregon town where she lives, ends up in the hospital. She reads about it in the newspaper, and she figures, aha, he's got amnesia is the deal. And so she figures, I'm going to go down there and tell them that I'm his wife, and I'm going to bring him home, and I'm going to get my comeuppance and put him to work. And so that's exactly what she does. And so he winds up being the house husband. And he, of course, he's this, he's never cooked in his life. He, the idea of making meals for three kids. And, and then she also sets him up with a job, a heavy labor job with some buddies <laughs> of hers who are digging a swimming pool and doing landscape work and this type of thing. So it's a real, literally a fish out of water uh, type of film a farce film, and, and there's some fun comedy in it. Absolutely. You know, and Rod, it's interesting because if you, if you look at the scores on this, on Rotten Tomatoes, mm. I'm willing to bet that those are based on the fact that they're gauging it against the original mm-hmm. with Goldie Hawn mm-hmm. and Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. Because I don't feel like it warranted a 28 or no. 29% or whatever it got. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is the farce genre, I guess it's a genre, 
it really, we don't see a lot that falls into that category. And so if I could be this this bold, not that I know everything, but uh, for us older critics, we're used to seeing these movies from decades ago. They don't come along very often anymore. So I think it may catch uh, younger people by surprise where they just see this as poor coincidence and bad writing, bad acting. But a lot of this, you know, over overboard, pardon the pun, performances and those types of things are just typical of, of the farce. Yeah. yeah. And so it stars Anna Ferris and Eugenio Derbez. Eugenio. Or, Eugenio. what I oh, have wow. learned. Yeah, Thank Eugenio. you for looking that yes, up. Yes, Derbez, yes. Who, by the way, he may not be very recognizable to American audiences, but this guy is bigger in Mexico, far bigger than Anna Ferris is in, in the United States. Oh, sure. He's, he's a huge, huge name. And in fact, he to me, he's the best part of this movie. Mm-hmm. And this is our second movie that we've seen with him. The first one we saw was a little film called how to be a Latin lover, mm-hmm. yes, and that actually did quite well mm-hmm. in the states. Even though, like you said, it was he's not as recognizable here. Um, that movie for me probably has bigger laughs than this movie does. Um, it's interesting though because the whole movie, my wife and I kept saying, Anna Ferris, she kind of resembles Goldie Hawn. Oh yes, yes. Now, having said that, she is no Goldie Hawn. No. I'm going to say that, and. <laughs> I'm I'm also going to say the original Overboard was by no means a classic. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's my big problem with this film is or the problem in the original film is the premise is just so hard to swallow. Mm-hmm. However, the chemistry between Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn is so good that you kind of forget about how ridiculous the premise is. The opposite is true here, I think. The the premise is easier to swallow than the chemistry between you, Eugenio and True. and Anna Ferris. I just we we could not see the two of them together, but he's charming enough to make it work. I think yes, yes, and he really is. He really carries the bulk of this. There's some interesting politics around. Well, I shouldn't. I don't know if it's politics or not, but there's there's something here. I'm assuming based on an interview with him in USA Today yesterday, and that is that he really set out to do a couple of things. First of all, to swap the gender roles because, mm-hmm. and he said this has worked out perfectly, of course, with the Me Too movement, and, and he feels that if they would have made the movie with the gender roles the same as they were back in the 1980s version, it would have been a disaster. Sure, but the other thing is he didn't come to Hollywood until 2013 and he is really wanting to change the image of Hispanics in movies where they're you know usually playing crooks and gangsters if they even get a speaking role sure. in the first place and so he really wants to break some of those stereotypes and that's happening as well and this film, in my opinion, they're doing a marketing experience. I call this a hybrid Hispanic English movie because think of 30% of this movie is in Spanish and we're right. watching English subtitles. In Canada, we're used to watching subtitles, but sorry, I, I've, I've read statistics. Americans don't like reading their movies. And yet they've made they've taken this risk with this film, and I suspect in Mexico it'll be the other way around. Obviously, sure. they'll be looking at English or at Spanish subtitles for the uh, English uh, characters. But typically, we would have 
Hispanic people speaking English with a Hispanic accent, yeah. but in this case, they didn't. If you want a really confusing movie experience, go watch How to Be a Latin Lover, and even more of that film is in Spanish, but there are no subtitles. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you're just trying yes. to figure out what they're saying on screen, and then obviously there are no subtitles for the English. Uh, because you know what they're saying. but yeah. um, The Spanish part is the one thing I did know about this movie, because my really? buddy from Argentina posted to Facebook right afterwards and absolutely loved the movie and thought it was the perfect uh-huh. mix between Spanish and English, and he does recognize the actor we're talking about from yeah. a lot of... You're talking yeah. about Overboard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Overboard. Yeah. yeah. And see, Cole, that's where I think this is... They want to do an experiment. Can we have something that's going to work across the Americas yeah. and make a lot of money by doing Audiences this? are smarter than Hollywood gives them credit for. <laughs> I are. mean, because we had no idea what they were saying, but we got the gist in, in How to Be a Latin Lover. We got the gist of what they were saying because they were very expressive mm-hmm. and you, you knew enough about the story that you got the gist of what mm-hmm. they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I will say about this film, just before we, Cole and I, share a little bit of good news, um, this film really made me appreciate all that my wife does around the house. <laughs> yes. And I really identified with his character because that is exactly what things would look like if I were to all of a sudden be in charge of all of the tasks around the house. Yeah. I would just be a complete mess. I would be completely exhausted. I would be inept. And, uh, yeah, so it really made me appreciate my wife a lot more. Well, and I, I'm, a, I'm grateful for that. He certainly is a quick study with the cookbooks. I couldn't believe the yeah. meals he's cranking down. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? But, yeah. Yeah. But, as you said, it's a farce. The premise yeah. is, is ridiculous. But it's, it's better than most romantic comedies you're going to see that they produce these days. Yeah. So, before we go to break, Cole and I want to share some very exciting news. And it's very interesting news. And it, I feel like... Uh, the creators of this show are kind of charting uh, – or they're going in uncharted territory. We're kind of staying with this theme of, of being at sea. But if you know anything about Arrested Development, you know that it was canceled after three seasons. It was resurrected on Netflix with a fourth season. Of, that was less than well received. Right. Fifteen episodes. People were less than thrilled about the results, mainly because each episode – focused on one character, whereas the first three seasons involved all of the characters, right? Mm -hmm. So people were kind of confused and a little not all that pleased about it. So the creator of the show, Mitch uh, Horowitz, Mm -hmm. um, he decided, I'm going to retool season four while I'm waiting for season five to come out, and we're going to take it back to the original uh, method of having all of the characters in every single episode. And now instead of 15 episodes, there are 22 episodes. So I'm not quite sure how that works. I don't know if there's additional material that they that they pulled from or if they just condensed each episode. But I am very intrigued. I don't know about you, Cole. It's called Arrested Development Season 4 Remix Fateful Consequences. <laughs> and it just fits in the style of the show. I'm excited to go watch it, and it'll be interesting to kind of compare them side by side. This kind of gives fans, I think, what they were more expecting to get. Um, but he also had fun doing something different. And I don't see this so much as just a response like, okay, fans, we heard that 
season four was terrible and we'll give you what you want. It's more that they were having fun and they still embraced what they did. Right. They're not apologizing. They're just saying, hey, we're going to give you this extra thing. Go enjoy it too. And it's really mm-hmm. a new idea as far as the streaming platform is concerned because you see all sorts of director's cuts on DVD and Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. This is really the first time you've seen this on a streaming platform. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll be like watching The Wizard of Oz while playing Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. Who knows? (laughs) It'll be a totally different viewing experience. Anyway, uh, we're going to continue on with this theme of remakes when we return. We are going to give you some ideas for superior remakes. I wouldn't say that this remake of Overboard is better than the original, but uh, we're going to give you some that are better than the originals when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. You know, it seems in Hollywood when you have a winning formula or in some cases a winning movie, you want to do whatever you can to repeat that success, right? So what do you do? You dust off an old favorite and you make it new again like we've seen with Overboard. Well, sometimes, uh, most of the time, it doesn't really work, but sometimes it does. And we're going to highlight the times that it does here on Screen Cleaning today. And we still have Rod Gustafson here from Parent Previews. We're going to each give you three picks of superior remakes that you're going to want to check out. And I'll go ahead and start with my first pick. This is a film that has had several remakes, and all of these uh, films have been based on a book, a book by Jack Finney called Body Snatchers. And then the title was changed to Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It was an old black-and-white 50s B-horror movie that (laughs) a lot of people really still revere to this day, starring a, a favorite character actor of mine, Kevin McCarthy. But the favorite iteration of Invasion of the Body Snatchers features a fantastic and very strange cast that they've assembled. Just listen to this cast. Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, and Leonard Nimoy. In the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I am a huge fan of this theme where it seems like the entire world is against you, or this other theme that it's really about, this McCarthyism theme of... Anybody that you know could be a communist, or in this case, anybody that you know could be an alien. Mm -hmm. And the numbers start to dwindle and dwindle as the film goes along. The cast alone is reason enough to see this movie, but really, it's creepier than any other version of this film. If, If for nothing else, the last few seconds of this film will burn a very scary image into your mind that you will not soon forget. My first pick for Superior Remakes is the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And, uh, Rod, we'll we'll have you go next. Have you seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I by the way? I have, and I totally agree. And Jeff Goldblum 
If, if, I don't know <sighs> what it is about that guy. I'll watch any movie of him. <laughs> in. So my my first pick is the 1991 Father of the Bride, of course, starring Steve Martin. Okay. Yes. So I have a soft, mushy heart. I must admit, I, I like rom-coms and, and that type of thing. But this movie, having just last year married off my first daughter, you know, this, this movie really has always been a family favorite in our home. And I really like it better than the 1950 Spencer Tracy one mm-hmm. for probably the biggest reason is Martin Short playing Frank, <laughs> the wedding planner. And for me, you know, Steve Martin is funny. Who would have thought, though, that Martin Short could steal the screen from Steve Martin? Right. Both of them just play off of each other just in yeah. such a marvelous way. By the way, speaking of those two, they're going, and speaking of Netflix, they're going to have, they tour together. They do a comedy mm-hmm. show together on the road, and I, I really have always wanted to see it. But coming to Netflix at the end of this month, they're going to have that special available. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay, so I'll be checking that. that out. Yes. Yeah. Cole, how about you? What's your pick? Your so first pick. My first one is my favorite one, and this comes from a long, long franchise with reboots and remakes galore. But the Star Trek movie of 2009. I think remade what they were trying to do the best because in my idea, the reason you do a remake is because you have a new story to tell. You had an old potential concept that was good or was not, but then you wanted to do something different with it. And so for for everything that Star Trek 89 or 2009 had going for it, what it did was created a new universe to play in. They didn't tie themselves down from this very, very lore heavy and the fans of it are very heavy in that lore. Yeah. They created their new universe so that they could go play in it. The very next movie that came out, they did just such – the reason – I'll back myself up for a second. <laughs> He's excited. The, the reason I'm excited about Star Trek 2009 is because of how disappointed I was in Star Trek Into Darkness. For, oh. Because they established this new universe, to have your second movie go and remake Wrath of Khan, when your characters that you've just established <laughs> don't know who Khan is, don't have everything going into it that it did the first time that they did it, that is why Star Trek 2009 stands out as a great reboot of the franchise because of how disappointing the remake that they mm. made after it was. Mm. I'm so happy that you mentioned that movie because I remember just being completely giddy watching it for the yeah, first time. me too. And I saw it without my wife the first time, and I insisted that we go see it again, and she was just as blown away with yeah. it as I was. The casting. The casting oh, yeah. was Incredible. I can't think of a remake where they've hit the casting better than that one. And speaking of casting, Zoe Zoe Saldana, who, by the way, just got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Mm. she has got several franchises to her name now. She's got Star Trek. She's got Guardians of the Galaxy slash Avengers. And she has the Avatar movies that are coming out. She is doing quite well for herself. It is true. Yes. So it's my, not, it, it is easy being green every now and then. Sorry, <laughs> quoting Kermit. Green or blue, yes. depending on which one you're watching. <laughs> uh, my number two pick for Superior Remakes is a, a movie from the 80s that was a remake of another black and white movie, another horror movie from the 50s. And this one holds a special place in my heart because in my uh, junior year of high school, I got to play one of the characters and not even arguably the best character in the play slash movie. And it's kind of circling back to Steve Martin. You've already mentioned a pick with Steve Martin. This one includes Steve Martin as well. 
and I'm just going to stop talking and tell you what the movie is. <laughs> Drum roll. <laughs> it is the Frank Oz-directed film mm. Little Shop of Horrors. And the role that I'm referring to is the role of Oren Scrivello DDS, uh, played by Steve Martin, who's this very uh, sadistic dentist who loves inflicting pain on others as well as uh, sniffing nitrous oxide. (laughs) And that role was so much fun to play in high school, one of the funnest times that I had in the theater. And he is quite good in it. He steals the show until a cameo by Bill Murray basically steals the show right from Steve Martin. If you haven't seen it, you really need to. Even by today's standards, the puppetry and the special effects are quite good. And Especially the very ending. Oh, my Not goodness. Not to spoil anything, right. but we get a very long, drawn-out view of all these puppets doing their thing. Which is not the original ending, by the right. way. This the, the film version that you're used to and that you've seen has the happy Hollywood ending. Not the original broad, off-Broadway ending, but also a great score and great songs by Alan Menken, who I just saw here at BYU not too long ago and realized he has eight Academy Awards to his Mm -hmm. name. So go check out Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, and by the way, I I had to cheat and look that up. I was quite certain. This is when, do you guys remember SCTV? Oh, yeah. It was a great Canadian comedy production Mm -hmm. that was put together, and it was pretty popular here, too. And this was when that's really hot, and pretty much the entire cast is in this movie. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of great cameos, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's my number two pick. How about you, Rod? Well, for me, I'm going to actually take an entire franchise, and it's Planet of the Apes. Now, my wife and kids love the original Planet of the Apes. It's pretty good. The first one's not bad, but then it kind of goes off the cliff for me (laughs) after that. By the time we get to Escape from the Planet of the Apes, it's a TV movie. (laughs) It's bad. But this new franchise, I think, has been one of the most underrated franchises that in recent memory that I can think of. I would love to have seen it, you know, for some major Oscar nominations and that type of thing. Andy Serkis, my goodness, can that guy act? And then the fact, too, that he's really evolved this whole motion capture thing. The writing is incredible. They have these incredibly, you know, deep antagonists. I always say the biggest thing that ruins a movie is a flat antagonist. All the focus goes into the good guy and not much goes into the bad guy. Yeah. This film, Woody Harrelson in the third one, just did an amazing job. Yeah. So I, I love it, and I really think that they've really brought that franchise back in a big way. And I've made this prediction before on the show, but if they never if they never include actors that are in motion capture suits or actors that are doing voiceover performances, mm-hmm. if they don't either create a separate category for that yeah. or include them in these main categories, I'm predicting right now that Andy Serkis is going to get an honorary Oscar someday because he has been such an innovator in this field. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree. And I don't know where they're going to put that. The line between animation and live action is going to continue to blur. Right. And Cole, I know you are a huge fan of this franchise. I love the Planet of the Apes. And just to be clear, (laughs) we're talking about the new ones with Andy Serkis, not Mark Wahlberg and Tim (laughs) Burton. Mark Wahlberg. No, no, we'll forget that. 2001 is gone. (laughs) Because some remakes are better than others. I only... I only saw that one the one time, but I don't remember hating it as much as everybody else did. I think it fell asleep. Okay. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking how ridiculous the end was, but yeah, yeah that's yeah. for a different time. So my first one was a reboot. Now I'm okay. going to take kind of the the remake that does what Overboard did. You know, Overboard switches up the genders. 
I want to talk about the remakes that switch up maybe the race of our main characters. Mm. There is a whole subgenre of movies that come out that are black reimaginings of other movies. My favorite being Dr. Doolittle, but things like oh, right. Naked which was a Marlon Wayans movie just recently, mm-hmm. um, Death at a Funeral, and even The Nutty Professor. Wait, mm-hmm. A lot of these movies are remakes. What was Naked a remake of? It was a Swedish movie oh, okay. Okay. that also was called whatever Swedish for Naked is. <laughs> um, but... You should have just made up a word. We wouldn't have known the difference. <laughs> you have to say it like the Ikea guy. Sorry. Uh, right. <laughs> But Dr. Doolittle, I think, became more famous. The The cool thing is a lot of these are just seen as knockoffs. There's a joke in community that they use um, that their <laughs> love don't cost a thing is just the black version of Can't Buy Me Love, you know. Which is a film I enjoy, actually. Which is all right. But a lot of these are just seen as lesser knockoffs. Dr. Doolittle, of all of these, is the synonymous Dr. Doolittle mm-hmm. now. And I think that's a really cool thing. Hmm. Wow. I have, I have seen neither of the Dr. Doolittle films. Or I, I know there are like really? 10 of them now, but well, I haven't seen any of them. My wife's favorite movie from childhood. Really? I with, think it's uh, about eight hours long, that original one. with oh, uh, It's the, the uh, guy uh, with from My Fair Lady, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison. Yeah, Rex yes. Harrison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time I saw it, drive in with my parents. Um, I woke up kind of when that tree was splitting, when the island or the continents were de- splitting. <laughs> and that's about all I remember. Yeah. Well, my final pick, before I give my final pick, I'm actually going to give an honorable mention that I just remembered last night as I was sitting on the couch with my parents and I, they recognize that, oh, you have the movie The Man from Uncle, mm. which I have never seen. The reason this is an honorable mention, I've never seen the original television series this film was based on. But I asked my dad, I was like, was the television series any good? And he's like, ah, it was pretty cheesy. So The Man from Uncle is one that really surprised me. I saw it in a preview screening where they don't have all the special effects in, maybe not all the right music that they're going to be using. And it was the only one that I've been to, and I've been to a handful, that I actually liked. And it was another one where I said – I went to my wife and I said, you're really going to want to see this one because it's so enjoyable. And now she likes it even more than me. Part of the reason is because it has Army Hammer in it, who mm-hmm. she thinks is quite handsome. And I – you know, not, not that I can argue with her, but uh, it's just so enjoyable. And it was directed by one of my favorite directors. I enjoy pretty much everything he does. Um, and now I'm blanking on his name. It's Madonna's uh, ex-husband, Guy, Guy Ritchie. Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. Yeah. He did uh, the two Sherlock Holmes films. He did this recent uh, um, uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Mm-hmm. And he did a bunch of other British R-rated See, films. I didn't know we were allowed to. I did a little TV mention with Star Trek, but my honorable mentions kind of go to TV as well. The oh. fact we have Lost in Space coming there out you now go. on Netflix, Battlestar Galactica. My parents would shame me if I didn't mention a little bit as well. <laughs> I didn't realize it as well until I picked my actual pick which is also based on a TV series, which is a series I'm actually watching right now and is quite good. So to be fair to the original, this TV series is quite good, even by today's standards. And it's The Fugitive. Mm, Oh, yes. So this is a show back in the 60s that won the Emmy for Best Drama. And that's saying a lot. And it it really puts the pressure on the uh, for Hollywood to make to do it justice. Right. And this movie did do it justice. Not only did it win an Oscar for Tommy Lee Jones for Best Supporting Actor, it was nominated for Best Picture. And it's just a it's just a straight 
thriller, you know, let's just catch this fugitive. And it's really quite thrilling. It's one of those movies that even though we own it on DVD, whenever it's on TV, we will sit down and watch it with commercials instead of putting the DVD in. It's that good. It requires repeat viewing. And Tommy, you can't get much better than Tommy Lee Jones as the U.S. Marshal in this film. He was amazing in that movie. That's the movie I remember thinking, wow, I, I have... I liked this guy before, but yeah, it was incredible. Yes. So that's my number one pick. Um, How about right. you, Rod? Well, and I, I always get mixed up as whether we're going three, two, one, or one, two, three. It so doesn't my, matter. These yeah, are these mine are, are in no particular mine order. Too, but yeah. for me, though, the new Ben Hur I thought was really underrated, and a lot of people were like, uh, you know, and it just kind of came and went in like three weeks and was done. But I really enjoyed what they did with the end of that movie, where they changed it from a revenge plot to a forgiveness plot, and I really felt like from a religious movie perspective. I mean, I still really appreciate the spectacle of the first one because, I mean, that was just this broad, widescreen, huge movie. But I really felt like this one had a lot more heart and it had a lot more emotion, and I really liked what they did with it. And the chariot race, by the way, a lot of people are going, oh, it's all CGI. According to the director, that was all optically lensed and wow. everything else. So, yeah, it's still, you know, I think it, it deserved a lot more cred than it got. So that's a statement that could ruffle a lot of feathers, Rod Gustafson. I've never seen the original, <laughs> so it's not ruffling yes, mine. But I know. Uh, I'm, I don't want I'm getting all anti-Charlton Heston <laughs> today. I mean, I didn't like him in Planet. Well, no, I liked him in Planet of the Apes, but he was only in the first one. One, which was the best one. So, I heard yeah. I heard that he turned down the role of Dumbledore in the Harry Potter franchise so that he could make that cameo in Planet of the Apes. Ah. I I I, I read it. I want it to be true. It probably it might not be, but it mm-hmm. sounds like it should be true. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. As long as we say it on the radio, it probably becomes yeah. true, right? It's there gospel, you go. right? It's mm-hmm. How about you, Cole? What's your last pick? So I'm going to a production company that has made their entire living off of remakes of one or another, and that is Disney. Disney has not come up with an original idea in the entire history of their universe. No. Everything is based off of something. Sure. Um, even nowadays, they're remaking their own old remakes and putting them into live action, right. which I think they've done a really excellent job on all of them. But I am going to one of my favorite Disney movies of all time that gets forgotten about a little bit, and that is Treasure Planet, a Whoa. reimagining of a remake of Treasure Island, which was a book and a movie and then a couple different movies and then Treasure Planet. I don't mm. think I ever saw that one. Oh, it's fantastic. So it tells – it does a great job at telling the pirate story from a space pirate perspective. The visuals in it are the best in any Disney movie, and I'll go and wow. die on that hill anytime. Mm. But they combined CGI, and, and it ended up being such an expensive process that they never went back and did it again, which mm. is why it's the best-looking Disney movie ever. Um, but it takes a reliable story, Jim Hawkins going off trying to become his own man, and – really gives it a lot of heart for a kid's movie and keeps some of the older piratey stuff in it as well. I think it's great. Well, we really appreciate you, Rod Gustafson, on screen cleaning each and every time you're on the show and for all your contributions, even when you're not on the show. (laughs) Thank uh, you. We hope to have you back again soon. So 
we've we've established that there aren't very many original ideas in Hollywood, and that's you know we fault Hollywood on that a lot. But sometimes they get it right, and mm-hmm. so we tried to share with you a few ideas of when that's the case. So go check out some of these movies; you won't regret it, especially The Fugitive. <laughs> if I could put in another two cents for that movie, go check it out. When we return, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning. You know what that music means. It means it's time to go to our two most epic guests on the show, our regulars, Spencer and Jerem from BYU Sports Nation, here to share with us a bit of sad news. But we won't focus on just the sad news of what happened last night with BYU Volleyball versus UCLA. Spencer and Jerem, are you feeling okay? Yeah, let's address the most important topic right now, though, first. Okay, we'll get to volleyball in a second. That music was perfect for what it felt like to get into the parking lot today. <laughs> Women's conference, extra foot traffic, K. Okay? Yeah. Then then we get to the parking lot, it's like, who are you? <laughs> you don't I, recognize and me? And I said, I said to the guy, I'm the most important person that works in that building. Whoa. And he, and he goes. He said, you you're work? Matt Meese? But he goes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but he goes, but you're coming to work? And I wanted to be like. No, I'm going to women's conference. I'm going to a few classes. Come on, dog. Wow. So you, you're, it sounds like What's you, your supervisor's name? This is like a holdover from, from the game last night. Maybe you're a little upset. A little frustration. But, yeah. No, I just like messing with the guy. Okay. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, BYU men's volleyball lost to uh, UCLA. Was it LA. even close? I didn't get a chance to see it. It was close. It was close. There were like 47 ties and 20 lead changes or something. Wow. It was it was really close. BYU had won two of the three previously in the season. This was on UCLA's home court. BYU could not get the serve going. Zero mm. aces, only match all year in which that happened. Not enough pressure to take UCLA out of it. What it does offensively, and the Cougars uh, bow out in the semifinals. For just a second time in nine matches, BYU lost the semifinal. Yeah. That's too bad. Mm. Hey, by the way, I don't know if you've seen this. If you check your email, you have an opportunity to uh, create a little caption for some of the pictures that are being taken around campus for BYU or for a women's conference. I can't so, think of anything more exciting. <laughs> there's a it's a it's a contest. You can win a prize. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Wow. You sounded really excited. I'm trying to keep energy low. Yes. For nine minutes from now. Yes. Oh, I see. So you're preserving your energy for when it really counts. Slash, now you figured it out. Slash, we got to fund it. We're we're headed to uh, Phoenix. We're doing a show in Mesa tomorrow. Really? Don't yeah. eat the don't eat the lettuce over there. Don't eat the lettuce. Okay. The romaine noted. You haven't heard about this? No. Do okay. Tell. Well, we don't want to throw Arizona under the bus, so I won't say anymore. Well, it sounds like you were. <laughs> I think the damage has been done. Jeffrey. The damage has been done. So, uh, what else is coming up on the program today? Oh, do we have time for this? Because yeah, we have like an hour. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, we have time. <laughs> We're going to talk about the BYU football schedule, not in 2018, but in 2021. We're bored of what? 2018. Let's go to 2021. That's good. Well, we added, we added Utah yesterday. State yeah. to the future BYU football scheduling matrix in 2021 and 2022. And in 2021, with the addition of the Aggies, 
it has essentially completed the schedule, which is crazy. You know, I mean, we're three years out, but that that schedule seems to be all but finalized. And it is loaded, which Jerem Jordan loves. Hmm. Seven Power 5 opponents. I like my nachos loaded more than my football schedules, I'll tell you that. Ooh, what do you put on your nachos, by the way? Uh, I put on uh, generally Texas, Houston, Boise State, Virginia, Cal. That's what I like on my nachos. That sounds spicy. What's the most winnable Power 5 road game for BYU as well this year? We'll discuss that. Fred Warner met with the 49ers, uh, the media that covers the 49ers. We'll talk to a beat writer who was there as well. And uh, Fred Warner switching positions, which is interesting. We'll talk with a Russian tennis star. <gasps> How in the world did she end up at BYU? And what Ooh. an opening campaign she had. That and much, much more coming up. You should have had me on the show. Did you go to Mother Russia? Da. On your mission trip? Da. Zvadanya? Manya zavut Spencer. <laughs> Ooh, atlichna. Nyazavut Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> Someone just tuned into one forty three and they're like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, Spencer, you are speaking to me in the formal uh tone, not the uh, the informal. Ah. Yeah. Da. Anyway. Just FYI, <laughs> you, this is these are all things that you can use for your interview. Yalubiogavori <laughs> Paruski. Yeah. You could use. I, I hope you play. use all of these <laughs> phrases in your interview. Yalubio basketball. That's not bad. That's really not bad. See, you don't save all the good stuff for your show. You you share some of it on our show as well. Russian one hundred and one on BYU Sports Nation. <laughs> well, BYU uh, Sports Nation is coming up next, and you're not going to want to miss it because you'll get your chance to hear Spencer and Jerem crack out the Russian. Anyway, have a great show, you guys. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Wow, I had no idea they were that fluent. That's almost as Was fluent that as fluent? it's almost as fluent as I am at this point, since <laughs> I haven't been there in decades. It's good that Spencer respects you enough to speak in the formal tone. And yes, that knew. you use the friendship tone for <laughs> off the air. Really. Yes, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, as with every episode of Screen Cleaning, we like to end the show with our panning for good segment. There's good in them dire hills. We've been going with the theme of remakes on the show today, and there are a lot of crummy remakes, let's be honest. One thing that we did not mention in this world of remakes, however, is just how many directors there are that have remade their own films. They want a second crack at it, and right. some studio gives that that chance. Or sometimes, you know, it's a foreign director who did their movie, and it's it's a good movie, but they want it to be more accessible to a, you know, a... United States audience. An American audience. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so I wanted to share some of the names of directors who have remade their own films. We won't share some of the, you know, French ones because we can't pronounce them and you probably wouldn't know their films Do anyway. Do you have any Russian ones on that list, Jeffrey? Uh, there was a Russian one. There a guy, you go. Uh, I, but he's not on the list. Um, so Cecil B. DeMille. I've heard Cecil of him. Cecil B. DeMille, Howard Hawks, mm. John Ford, Frank Capra. George Lucas, Michael Mann, John Woo, Robert Rodriguez, Tim Burton. Wow. Yeah. 
But the one I want to uh, really highlight is Alfred Hitchcock. Absolutely. Who did two versions of the film The Man Who Too The Man Who Knew Too Much. And I've actually seen both of these versions. There is a lot to be admired in the original film. Uh, although the later one is really the better film, in my opinion, and I think in most people's opinion. In fact, everything I read about the two films suggested that the original film is a great effort from a talented director um, or a somebody who's more up and coming. These, this is a great effort. The, the later one, starring Jimmy Stewart, is the one that a lot of people would consider to be a classic and really the superior film. And it's about a family who's vacationing in Morocco that uh, accidentally stumbles onto an assassin, assassination plot and the conspirators are determined to prevent them from interfering. Also, the best it, it contains the best use of the song K Sera Sera. There In you fact, go. that's where I know it from High is this movie. But go check it out or really anything by Alfred Hitchcock, and he won't steer you wrong. He's a good director. He's one of the best and uh, a director who knows how to remake a film. Why not remake your own? That's going to do it for Screen Cleaning. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great episode.